This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Two minutes. So Deal this is a... We're going live one minute early. Uh, we're on our 46th hour, 48th hour now. Of us discourse. talking? Of us, if you and me talking, there's a, there's another video, like a three hour video where I interrupted you too much and everybody got mad at me. So there's like that, that really, uh, you know, tongue in cheek titled 48 hours of bit voice, not interrupting Lindsay. So here we are yeah. 48 hours. What do you, what do you want to talk to over me about? Whatever you want me to talk over you about. You clam chowder recipes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know what? I found those. I, I gotta do that. So you are the expert the... in those now, not me. Okay. So you tell me on the. I didn't. I did. I have them now. They're in my catalog. I need to make chowder. Can I can I give you a spicy question first? Have we actually really started? Yeah, we're started. We're streaming. Oh, we're okay. talking yeah. over each other. Okay. So show me on the Ouroboros where the globalists touched you. <laughs> uh-huh. The 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 definition of the Ouroboros or whatever is that it uh, touches you everywhere. It, oh. it touches every part of you. It touches the outside. It touches the inside. Whatever was on the inside becomes the outside. Whatever's on the outside becomes the inside. Um, yeah, it touches everywhere. It's totalitarian. Why, why is it such an infectious symbol? Or why do you think that it's, 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 it shows up somewhere places? Well, I mean, it has a, it's really old. Um, it's, it's a kind of, I don't know why it shows up like everywhere, but uh, it certainly has showed up in a very wide variety of places. Um, it's supposed to symbolize kind of a cycle of, you know, uh, death and rebirth in a sense, because you're consuming yourself and being reborn. Uh, you're, you're reconstituting yourself in a sense, allegedly that it's, it's supposed to represent, you know, the destruction of your ego in order to release the, you know, kind of higher form of your being. Why it's had such an enduring um, legacy, I don't know. I have not actually dug into the the origins of the snake eating itself. Uh, there's probably a lot to do with the fact that much in our lives and in our experience, but not nearly everything, uh, obviously, is cyclical. The seasons come in cycles. The um, the sky appears to well it doesn't appear to move in some sense. It appears or it moves in very definable cycles. Um, so lots of things seem cyclical, uh, which is movement around a circle. Mm-hmm. One one thing that um, I found or I find perennial, and I misspelled that word on Twitter. So apparently there's two meanings to this word if you spell it. Did you spell way. it perennial? Yeah, perennial. Like I didn't taint? Know. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> so, wrong. So yeah, that, that's but, not you know. the same word. That's a completely well, the, different word. The taint keeps on coming between, back. Yeah, that means your taint. That's a different thing entirely. I mean, I guess your taint could be perennial too. You, know, you never stop every year. <laughs> it's after always year, in season. That's right. Every time the weather gets warm, taint. But in the words of Jonathan Peugeot, symbolism happens. Like human beings think through symbols, we feel through symbols. 
Mm-hmm. And so we have these symbolic structures that arise over and over and over again. And one argument that I see against the Enlightenment is that we can't just purge ourselves of symbols, like facts, empirical... Why would we purge ourselves of symbols? That doesn't make any sense. Like well, math get... is like as cut and dry as it gets, right? Yeah. Now, now I'm speaking over you. Like, but seriously, most people think math is about as cut and dry as it gets, right? Yeah. Have you looked at math? Have you ever looked I, at math? What do you see on the page? I can't decipher it. Yeah, why? Because symbols, right? Lots of symbols, things that look like glyphs, things that you know what they are. Okay, so why would we get rid of symbols? Our mm-hmm. letters are symbols that represent the, you know, some set of sounds that we're supposed to make, at least in a phonetic language like English. Um the symbols in Chinese writing symbolize actual concepts themselves. Uh, more abstract symbols, like you would have, like the Ouroboros, I guess, is a fairly complicated one, or the cross, or uh, the Star of David, or whatever it happens to be, as religious symbols. Um, they convey a lot of meaning in a very kind of compact form. They form a sort of language. Uh, you could actually communicate largely in symbols. I think, in fact, you could make a silent film and that's all communicating in symbols. You could argue that words are symbols. We're not, the, the Enlightenment Project has nothing to do with purging the world of symbols or symbolism. Um, I think it has to do with uh, over-determining the utility of those symbols. It might strive not to do that. Uh, it, it's pretty easy. I mean, symbols symbolism doesn't really... I mean, Peugeot likes to play in symbols, I guess. I don't care, but symbols aren't really relevant to the conversation. Okay. All right. The religious, I just have to let Dr. Rollergator interrupt us both. He says, circles are math and math is for nerds and nerds are square. So he's really, Whoa, he circled the square. Yeah. He's really bringing up some really deep uh, contradictions in our way of thinking here. What he said is the circle in the square, which is actually the compass in the square, which is actually that he's a Freemason. Oh, symbols. Wait, I thought they were all about triangles, but you know. I'm Speaking of that, I went to the to the Grand Lodge when I was in London, and you can got you can buy robes and all kinds of funny stuff in there. Okay, and you can also buy uh, like a like a brooch that's like. A, a key, but the key has like a swastika on it, which is really weird. And you can buy, I mean, that's a symbol. It appears all over the place. It's the, the, the wheel of Mithra. It's the Falun in Chinese. I know a lot about these things and it mm-hmm. doesn't stir me to playing some kind of like DPD game with symbol symbolism where okay. I get to claim some shit that I don't know. But you okay. can also, they have an entire area set up about like how <laughs> Freemasonry is queer it's like all these rainbows and stuff. You can buy okay. like rainbow suspenders with like Freemason icons on them and stuff. And it's like, okay, so there's some symbols. There's symbols. Um, maybe we can purge some symbols. Okay. So you said it's not relevant to the conversation then. So what I find well, it's interesting not, is like this. It's relevant. I mean, we can talk about it, but it's not relevant to the problem. It's like symbols. Like I don't see classical liberalism in conflict with the idea that we use symbols. Okay. Or religious. Is there a con- contention between religion or religious ways of thinking and enlightenment thinking? Cause some people in this particular 
conversation or, or saying that you're part of like this uh, post-religious no. secular kind of way of thinking that can't grok the enchantment and the, uh, you know, the, the symbolism, the mysticism is one thing that you. Yeah. I'm not big on mysticism, but that's like a complete straw man of classical liberalism and of my position. It okay. is that, uh, Religion is in classical liberalism. Religion is not prohibited by any means whatsoever. Go to fucking China if you want religion to be prohibited. Uh, religion is not in any way prohibited. Religious liberty is guaranteed. In other words, it is a matter of personal decision, including voluntary communities that you make. In other words, no authority is going to come in and tell you which set of symbols, which set of meanings ascribed to those symbols, and which set of doctrines, theologies, and uh, interpretations you're going to, or scriptures you're going to have to use in order to try to make sense of the world around you. Um, there's nobody forcing you to be any particular faith. There's nobody forcing you not to be any particular faith. If you want to be Catholic, you can be Catholic. If you get pissed off at the Catholics, it turns out you can leave the Catholics and you can go become a Baptist. If you want to become a Baptist and you think, wow, I don't like the way that they talk about paedo-baptism and I want to be a credo-baptist, you can go choose a different church. You have lots of liberty there. What that doesn't have is the capacity to force upon the entire society some concept of uh, of religious belief or of ultimate telos uh, an ultimate meaning in life. And I think that that is the key piece. What it prevents is religious tyranny, not religion. It doesn't prevent people from seeking meaning in their life and finding meaning in their life or persuading people to come join uh, groups that are pursuing meaning collectively or in any other way. What it prevents is the some state authority or magisterium or combination thereof from stepping in and telling you what the hell you have to believe and how you're going to believe it and how you're going to practice it and what's going to happen to you if you don't and what's going to happen to you if you're merely accused, even falsely, of not properly doing it and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so it's a safeguard uh, for the individual who thinks, you know, I read the scriptures. I read the scriptures and that theosis thing in orthodoxy turns out not to be in there anywhere. And now we've gone very uh, Martin Luther. And then maybe you write some theses and you nail it to the wall of uh, of the cathedral. And the next thing you know is the Catholic Church puts out a freaking fatwa on you for the next 15, 16 years. And finally, you kind of escape that Protestantism is born. What it prevents mm -hmm. is falling back before the ability for somebody to take the scriptures themselves and sit down and pour over them or decide never to open them for themselves mm. and to make sense of the world as they feel they need to. If you want to be a mystic in a classical liberal setting, nobody's stopping you. Turns out if you want to be a uh, mystic in the heretical sense, in the classical meaning of hereticism or a, a heretic, under a religious theocracy, you have no such option, even if you're right. Turns out if a true perspective is deemed heretical, you don't have that right. And so when you have liberalism, you have the ability for people to pursue faith or the lack thereof according to their conscience. And it strips literally none of the meaning out of life. It just makes it so that you have to take the personal responsibility of going and finding pathways to meaning in your life yourself. Yeah. And is what meaning about, in um, life when, when it's compelled really meaning or is it well, oppression? Let's, let's take a couple of symbol. Let's take a, a symbolic statement that you hold in high regard. Two plus two equals four. 
Uh-huh. Um, so in a liberal society, that could be five or it could be four. Uh, nobody's well, going to force you to believe that two plus two equals four. Nobody's going to force you to believe that it's four. You're just going to be wrong. And then what's going to happen is when you try to demonstrate your competence based on your inability to calculate your enumeracy, your competence is going to be lacking. And so the idea is that if we can actually assign authority to one another voluntarily. So let's say I want Benjamin Boyce to be my teacher, right? Benjamin Boyce is over here saying two plus two equals five. And I think, well, Benjamin Boyce, that's very interesting. I want to learn from you of your two plus two equals five magic. Show me something you can build with your two plus two equals five. When it falls over, I'm going to be like, this dude's a fraud. I don't consent to letting this guy teach me. I'm not going to engage in that relationship. And I mean, that's a very stupid cut and dry um, sort of way to put it. But this Hmm. is ultimately ultimately the idea that um, we have to and should judge by fruit, not by, uh, because somebody said so. I don't need to believe two plus two equals four because some church told me two plus two equals four. And I'm not compelled to believe that two plus two equals five because some Marxist told me that I have to believe that under certain conditions because it's not true. And so what happens when you are not compelled to believe certain statements as a matter of orthodoxy is you're allowed to ask the questions and pursue the answers for yourself. I can pursue them. You can pursue them. Whoever's getting better answers is demonstrated by whatever variables are interesting to us, like building a bridge that doesn't fall down or something like that. Or maybe it's just being a wizard that persuades people can attract a following. And that's ultimately the thing that they're railing against while it's actually ultimately also the thing that they're doing, which means what they're really mad at is that other people are attracting a bigger following than they can with their bullshit because they're like, this is meaningful to me. I should have lots of people following me and or following my my sect of meaningfulness, but they're over here doing this wrong thing. And it's like I've been saying for like 20 years, man, everybody loves liberty right up until somebody else uses theirs for something they don't like. Mm-hmm. So no... You can believe two plus two equals three and five all day long, but you can't do anything with it except look like a tard. Well, can you say tard on YouTube? Yeah, you can do tard. Let's just not talk about cutting though. Um, But what about the power vacuum? So this is, this is one thing that I find interesting about the kind of post Machiavellian elite theory kind of the NXR uh, people. They're, they're trying to lay out like there's a power vacuum in liberalism like there's no central authority so everybody's kind of open so you do have i guess the trade-off is that you do have demagogues and then you have broken bridges but then you have you also have people able to pursue good bridges and people to organize collectively in a positive sense but without that central authority isn't there always going to be a power vacuum and people trying to rush into its place and that's why marxism or uh variations of marxism keep on recurring because there is a power vacuum and this is one way where everybody can get on the same page and do collective action and and project collective meaning together and so liberalism constantly has to or liberalism isn't anything itself the people that are in the liberal system have to kind of police other people or police other groups like who does that how do you keep that marketplace from being dominated by certain authoritarian consequences or movements. Yeah, see, that's not, the problem isn't that there's a power vacuum. The whole idea is to prevent unjust concentrations of power. And that's okay. literally the whole purpose is to make so, sure... And who that, does that then? Everybody well, collectively? Well, technically, what rules is law. 
And so we're supposed to have a system by which we write laws in which the laws are enforced such that unjust collections of power um, or unjust applications of power. For example, if I'm stronger than you and I decide to take your stuff, that's an unjust application of my physical strength. Uh, have something that, that gets answered uh, through the law. That's ultimately what's supposed to happen is law is supposed to rule. The problem isn't that there's a vacuum of power. The goal is to prevent unjust accumulations of power. That's literally the purpose. The problem is that there is a vacuum of certain kinds of power or an absence of certain kinds of power or concentrations of power, but there are other places where power can, con can concentrate tremendously. Marxism is particularly an outgrowth of this particular weakness. Hmm. And that particular weakness is that, yeah, we're going to limit the state, but we're not going to limit the power of corporations. We're going to allow corporations in some sense to get as big and powerful as this is in, in essence. What Marxism is complaining about is that corporations can become so powerful that they themselves become the exploiters. And as they become powerful in, uh, in practical terms, beyond a certain point, they actually attract the attention of the state and they start to fuse together with the state and create something where you no longer have a protection from a concentration of power. You have a concentration of power um, that is being facilitated through this kind of two-handed monster of state and corporation where you can't quite ever pin down who's doing the illegal thing. And so mm -hmm. the, the problem isn't specifically that there is a... Uh, vacuum of power. The whole idea is that we're going to prevent the accumulation of power such that it can be applied unjustly. It's that the situation that we find ourselves in, and I don't know what the solution to this problem is, allows for power centers to grow strong enough to kind of hit escape velocity from that situation and create in effect, you know, power space lasers, I guess. Yeah, so uh, too big to fail, meaning actually too big to hold accountable. Well, I mean, that's definitely the case. The failure of a business is it being held accountable to its own miscalculations. And so if it's deemed too big to fail and say the government, which is to say the taxpayers are stepping in to bail it out, then you have a completely different situation on your hands because the accountability is no longer there. Uh I mean, I can't think of a great analogy, but it's like propping a thing up on life support that that's supposed to die. Uh, it's time to mm -hmm. die has come or that it's it's just. I guess you could rehabilitate something and hope that it's going to do something right in the future. But this is the other issue with with the, the corporation. And I think that there are probably smart legal strategies to recontour corporate law that get around a lot of the issues that we're seeing kind of come to fruit right now. But the corporate law in our entire society really is based on the concept of corporate law right now. So why not corporate people? Why not corporate entities? Why not corporate thinking? Why not collectivism? Uh, the problem is that corporate corporations by definition are a diffusion of responsibility. Um, the people who are involved yeah. in a corporation have limited liability to a rather extreme degree. And so there's a massive diffusion of responsibility in the corporate kind of structure. So if we think that that becomes emblematic of how our entire economy and much of our, our thinking 
actually works. And we think over the last, say, 150 years, I had a conversation with the philosopher Stephen Hicks. I think you've talked to Stephen before. I don't know. Yeah, Stephen's wonderful. Fun. I had dinner with him uh, recently and we talked about this. And he thinks that one of the driving problems right now that's allowed for so much of this collectivism, whether it's communism on the left or this post-liberalism on the right, that's kind of arising in this space, is that there hasn't been a strong articulation of the philosophy of the individual, which is what classical liberalism is based on. There hasn't been a strong articulation of the philosophy of the liberal since John Stuart Mill in the 1850s. So we're talking 170 years, 175 years maybe, depending on how we count from what publication, that there's been no robust articulation of what the individual is, why the individual matters. But in the meantime, there have been one after another, after another, after another counter theory and critique of the individual that's been launched. And this post-liberal crap on the right is just yet another one of those. All of those are lumped under this kind of counter-enlightenment or anti-enlightenment philosophy thinking. Um, but you certainly had robust debates, say, at the end of the 18th century between people like Locke and Rousseau, uh, philosophical schools, not specifically the individuals. You had robust debates between kind of this American idea and this, say, French social contract idea. But on the other hand, we haven't had this robust articulation of the, of the individual in 170 years. Now, what Stephen said more specifically was that all of the really old ones have holes you can punch in them. And those holes are basically sophomore undergraduate philosophy students can punch holes in basically every theory of the individual that's been forwarded in 170 years. And so, of course, the downstream effects of not knowing what an individual really is and why the individual matters prevents you from understanding a robust philosophy of individual rights, which prevents you from being able to see um, a full embrace of what's going on with um, the classical liberalism, which is ultimately not the exaltation of the individual, but it is the recognition that the individual is, in fact, the fundamental atomic unit of human society. Each human being is, in fact, an individual. There's no getting around that. Suppose you're making a contrast between a philosophy of the individual and like individualism uh, as it has developed, at least in America, with, uh, you know, really self-centered, you build yourself, consumerist individualism, uh, the the, uh, the, uh, the accent or the emphasis of life is about pleasing yourself and, and uh, you know, self-esteem, because, so I, I'm, I'm seeing there's a lot, so I, I don't, I suppose you're not talking about that kind of individualism. You're talking about I'm not another... talking about like consumerist atomization, no, which is okay. really a product of the marketing era. Um I mean I'm that's like that's like like when when Pajot put on uh Twitter the other day that Marquis de Sade it was a enlightenment thinker. I'm like that's roughly equivalent to saying that Edward Bernays was, you know, an individualist or whatever. And he's literally laid out the this description of propaganda um, and mm. became the father of the field of public relations, but it's yeah. uh, literally, he was a propagandist. Um, and I don't think that I am what I buy is a very good definition of the individual. I think that okay. the critical theorists really did a fantastic job not to give them any credit because they're not deserving any credit, but they tore that concept apart that 
in fact, when people think that they are what they buy, they're in some sense very one-dimensional. And in fact, they're kind of automatons mm -hmm. of the culture industry, which creates a culture that it commodifies and sells to them. And then they buy that culture. They identify with what they are. Oh, I'm a Coke drinker. And then the next thing you know, um, they identify with that and they end up working in order to buy more of that stuff to identify more with that thing. And they thus become on this kind of treadmill of consumerism. I think that they have decent critiques of that. I just don't think it was as prompt. I think that they were overemphasizing what a big deal it was. Uh, so that's certainly just another example of the idea that a bad theory of the individual is very easily torn apart, even by bad faith actors who aren't putting together a terribly sophisticated theory. And I think that that's really more of a point toward what Hicks was trying to say. Hmm. Um, he told me, I asked him, do you have a robust theory of the individual? And he said, yes. And I did not have the pleasure of hearing, I'm sure, okay. what would have been a brilliant exposition of what the individual is. I've been thinking about it since that conversation, which took place, I guess, the last day of October. So maybe it was on Halloween. Maybe it was the day after. Um, we were in London for the arc thing. So it was certainly during arc and, uh, hmm. I, it's about a month, I guess then that I've been thinking about yeah. what would a philosophy of the individual look like. Um, that wouldn't slide into atomization. Cause it sounds like right. Well, um, I don't understand why people believe that it slides into atomization whatsoever. We are obviously a species that is social in nature. We obviously socialize with one another. We obviously share beliefs. We obviously spend a lot of time trying to persuade one another, if not coerce, exhort, or force other people to believe similar things to us. I think that the atomization is not caused even so much by consumerism. I don't know if you've ever seen those people who all buy, say, Corvettes, and then a couple times a year they have big Corvette rallies and they go to Corvette things. They have like a whole Corvette community that doesn't seem vapid at all. It seems fun. It seems like it's a way for them to have a, a channel in their lives for something they enjoy and in, to meet people and connect together like the church of Corvette, it's not like a heretical thing. You're welcome to go enjoy Corvettes. And that's just one thing. There are a lot of people who are into a lot of different stuff. And I don't see that that's necessarily a problem. What I think the reason for the atomization has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. And I will show you very physically exactly what I think the cause of the atomization is. Physically? Oh, okay. You're not the tornado. Okay, yeah. The cell phone. Not your premium. The okay, reason great. is, and I have a theory about this. Yeah, by the way, my lock screen is a guy mowing the lawn. This is a real dude from Alberta that was mowing his lawn during a tornado. And his wife was like, what are you doing? And he's like, I had my eye on it. And I figured that guy's my spirit animal. So that's been my lock screen on my phone for a long time. It was on my computer too, but uh, it's been my lock, lock screen for like a decade. That's um, very inspiring. The tornado's over there. I've got stuff to take care of over here. So I remember that every time I touch my phone or open my phone, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm supposed okay. to go like read some godforsaken book about communism and tell people about it. I'm not supposed to start freaking out about whatever the hell the news is trying to get me to freak out about. That's the tornado. Yeah. It's over okay. there. I got my eye on it, whatever. Okay, so yeah. for, aside from that, the cell phone. And here's, and I think you and I have actually spoken about this, not just in person, but also, which we can now say, by the way, how Yay. cool. Uh, but also, um, we did have, well, you had chowder. stood on I a pier. Yeah, you had And we saw, chips. what were they? It was like a lion's mane 
jellyfish or something like yeah, that. Yeah, some sort of creepy jellyfish. It'll be on a some video. Some creepy jellyfish and then some cute jellyfish and some seals. Little we saw fishies. marine wildlife. Yeah. Wow. Like the weird we kind of people fishing and catching nothing. Or no, cauliflower looking things growing on the top. Oh, yeah, the barnacles that look definitely like 100% cauliflower under yeah. the water. Yeah, we had a great, that was a very pretty day. Yeah, it was The good mountain day. was kind of out. It was, it was, it was spectacular. Um, but no, we talked about this, I think, on the stream before too, which is um, that the dynamic, which I know that I have personally experienced, so I know it's a thing that can happen. I don't know how far I can generalize it but I would reckon that it generalizes really, really, really well uh, if I had to make a guess, is that I want to say, especially like I worked hard or I did a bunch of stuff and I'm tired, right? So I'm just going to kind of set the stage. I want some social interaction, but I don't want to like take a shower and get my crap together and go out. I don't want to spend money again out at another bar. Like I just want to like chill out at home and have social interaction. Now, 30... 30 years ago, what that would have involved was you need to call somebody and get them to come over if you're not willing to be the one who goes out. And you're still going to have to kind of do up a little bit and make make yourself presentable. Or else you're going to have to figure out social interaction with the family that happens to be living with you or something, right? You have a very different set of parameters. But right now, I want some social interaction. I'm tired. Maybe I'm a little depressed. I pick this up. Mm-hmm. And I start going on. Who sent me a DM? Who sent me a text? Who sent me a message on this, on that, and the other thing? And I want a social interaction that really, let's think of it like an itch. The only way I can really scratch that itch is if I were to go to get together with somebody that I value spending time with in person and spend time with them in person, even if it's just hanging out, which is like screw off time. Even if all we do is sit there and chit chat about small talk stuff, have a drink or whatever, and then go home. I can't scratch that itch texting with random people on here. I get a very different and very limited amount of human connection through this thing. The problem is it's really easy. It's really, really, really easy to go on this thing and try to pretend to connect with humans. Once in a while, you do get a satisfying connection, but of course, being a dopamine box, it makes you want to have another one. Mm-hmm. And so you start turning to a device that cannot, in general, satisfy your need for human connection because there is only a mediated and partial human connection being achieved. Yeah. And then the mental cycle is to do it again and again. So you have this dissatisfying experience that you go back to again and again, and you're increasingly alone by yourself, eventually not taking a shower, probably in like sweatpants or your underwear or something, sitting there like a slob, belly hanging out of your t-shirt, talking on the internet like you're super cool, and the juxtaposition of what's real and what's what you, you're presenting to the world grows bigger and bigger, and you feel increasingly alienated knowing the, slob, the slobbery and sloth that you're living in as compared to the social interaction that you crave and you're not getting. And that's just the social aspect of it. There's the depression aspect. I'm a little bit bummed out. I'm a little bit sad. I'm going to go on and try to get my dopamine hit and my social connection and feel better. It's not satisfying. I'm a little more depressed. When I put my phone down, finally, I didn't quite get what I need. I'm a little bit depressed. I go to sleep. I wake up miserable. And the cycle of depression increases. Then there's anxiety. Holy shit. What just happened in Israel? Oh my God. On this all day, what am I trying to do? I get in a fight with the feminists. What do I do? I go on here 
all fucking day trying to Why get would the you... stress of the the discord to go away but mm. every time i go back on i get more discord i get more argument i get more disagreement i get less consilience and more anxiety and so these things as social mediators become engines of increasing enemy loneliness depression and anxiety and i think that the atomization that everybody's like liberalism failed isn't it weird how liberalism didn't bother to fail until social media came along like the 1980s like literally nobody thought liberalism failed mm. we just had a bunch of people like doing a bunch of financial scams getting rich off their balls cheating our whole system and a bunch of politicos selling our country out to china and other places but liberalism hadn't failed as a social organization system in the 80s they always say you just want to go back to the 90s it's not that the 90s were special it's that we weren't destroying ourselves psychologically and socially with social media and instant messenger and text mm. messages is what they call it now and dms uh, when Facebook first came out, one more example, since you're adding to your does not interrupt me, <laughs> like, uh, biting my time, James. Yeah. Um, so when Facebook first came out, my wife and I had this really, I think a lot of people, I know a lot of people had this experience. I've talked to uh, every, like a lot of people about it and like everybody I've ever talked to finds it relatable. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, we get to connect with all of our old friends. We get to stay in touch. Oh, wow. Here's this person. Here's that person. And everybody, because you're in this weird... So being online is this weird hybrid world where you're simultaneously in public and in private. And so yeah. you say stuff and people really got political and they still are very political on social media in ways that they would not have done in the context of each individual relationship. So I find so-and-so from high school. Now let's say that I ran into so-and-so out one day and we're like, hey, great to see you. Let's go catch up. Let's go get a coffee. And we sat down. I'm gonna be real careful about how I talk to the person. We're gonna rem reminisce about old high school stories. We're gonna talk about very, but I don't know what this person's beliefs are with religion, philosophy, politics, a lot of topics. I don't know what they think about Israel versus Palestine, but I know that it's gonna get ugly if I jump in on the wrong side of that thing. So for the most part, social interaction was very, very heavily contextual to what you knew was safe to bring up with other people. Then Facebook comes along as the first major popular social media platform that virtually everybody got involved with. And what happened? Everybody just went home and put that shit straight on their Facebook page for everybody they've ever met and reconnected with. Grandma, best friend, yeah. mom, dad, the small little political circle that you're actually trying to impress. And my wife used to call it Facebook is a device that was invented to teach you who among your friends are not allowed in your house. <laughs> now think about that. You ask where the atomization and the enemy come from and you try to blame these grand scale philosophies when the device that's causing your problem is literally in your hand staring at you with its demon camera all the effing time. Hmm. And I say this as somebody who virtually lives on mine, so I can't like, like mea culpa, like, yeah, yeah. I'm not like, but I don't think that blaming the socio-political and economic system is the problem, or even the the commodification culture industry, you'll notice the critical theorists were complaining about that from the 1940s through the 1980s, and it never once seemed to be a problem until we had social media. 
You know, I just wanted to uh, interject that Facebook didn't become political till later on. It was mostly, and there was like a meme, a Facebook meme, or like, well, here we go, just somebody else's dinner. You don't need to share everybody's dinner. I think Twitter was like that too, where it was just or Instagram. Mm-hmm. Like it was really shallow. I think people uh, felt like there was meaninglessness in that, and so then politics started getting more and more. Yeah, and there it could was be that, the algorithm. It could be. You know, uh, it could be some sort of propagandist thing where, well, there's more attention, like a feedback loop between the people who want to, who benefit from people thinking politically all the time and just people's natural inclination to pay attention to politics and value that more no, than I, dinner. That's right. So. That's right. And it's like, it's like when you watch those videos, they used to call them motivational. And I don't think anybody lies about that anymore, like Fitspo. And it's like some super fit person doing some impossible bullshit. And you're like, yeah. wow. I want to learn gymnastics too. And then you go out and like get on a pull-up bar and you're like, holy shit, this is impossible. And like two years later, you're still trying. You still can't do a single muscle up. Forget that flagpole thing or whatever. Like the human flag is like, holy crap. And then you start watching these videos of these dudes that are just totally, or these chicks sometimes that are just totally like at the top of their game. And you're like, I'm not motivated. I'm demotivated. And what I slowly started to realize, like the most motivating thing for me in the world to get me to exercise, do you know what it is? Twinkies. Being fat people at the grocery store. Oh, okay. I'm like, you know, there, but for the grace of my workout, go I. Let's go home and hit it hard. Uh, And yeah, it turns out that watching other people exercise better than I can does not inspire me to work out better. Seeing fat people, (laughs) and I'm like, uh uh-oh. Like the one driving like the little rascal, like with the shopping cart attached to it. I'm like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. We're going to go do some push-ups right now. Like we got to work on some flexibility. You got to be able to get down to the bottom shelf. People who can't physically manage stuff like, oh yeah, mobility time. Let's go. When you think about where we society put the moral busybodies, because moral busybodies are kind of like, uh, I just... They're another perineum of just uh, humanity. They they exist. They got to be somewhere. But when you found them in the wild, outside or prior to the internet, they were kind of like in college campuses. You'd have like the kind of sorry to say this, but kind of like the feministy kind of women like going around telling everybody what to do. And then in the church ladies, you know, in, in the church, and like there were these social organs or institutions where the moral busybody found a place and got to do their thing and was somehow put in place uh, and, uh, you know, kind of not juggled, but like other things were going on and they could do their thing, but like the, the community was bigger than them and they didn't have priority over the whole community, but something on the internet, like it really incentivized the moral busybodies. And then you have this DEI thing going on where the moral busybodies are now put in places of power. I'm wondering if you think that, you know, the whole turn, the DEI turn, the queering of education, the critical theorizing or theoring of of education isn't just the march through the institutions, but also a part of social media. It's also sociological action where these people do kind of have a, a primary place in our consciousness online in our social environments because they, they do have like just such a big impact. A footprint because the way that their messages can propagandize and split. And then, then we find them also in our institutions. I wonder if like there's a feedback no, I think that's they see that. completely right. Um, they're like the community guidelines people. 
Like, well, if we're going to have a page on Facebook where we're going to meet and discuss, there need to be rules of what the appropriate discussion is because otherwise Sally's going to get pissed and rage quit. And mm -hmm. so I'll take it upon myself to lay out a bunch of rules and then um, everybody has to follow the rules and I appoint myself the authority to moderate. It's like literally like moderator culture. And then the people who took over moderator culture is, I mean, you do need mods. It's true. But the people who took over moderator just don't culture want are people who want Reddit mods. That's the thing. You want well, mods, yeah, but they, not Reddit mods. They want community standards. In other words, what they want to do is they want to be mall cops. They really do. They want to be able to go around and crack knuckles. It reminds me like when I had, uh, when I was in the airports a lot during COVID, I, not when I had COVID. So I was in a lot of airports. I don't know if I ever told you the story of why I stopped wearing masks in airports, which was the second to last place I stopped wearing masks. The first to last place that I stopped wearing masks was uh, the last place, in other words, was um, on airplanes because they literally would make you do it. Yep. It was like, okay. we'll find you $10,000 if you don't put your mask on, sir. I'm like, oh, shit, okay. We'll put you like on a no-fly list, which is really bad to be on. So like, fuck. So I gave up on airports. So I was flying. I had been, I didn't wear masks anywhere except in the air travel circus. Course, yeah, I refused. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm flying and I'm in the airport. And then one day I landed in Houston and I get on the little train between terminals and there's this woman sitting down on the very end. You know, the train has like that end seat. It's like a little couch on the end. And she's kind of a hippie woman or whatever, you know, vaguely pretty, but not like a knockout. She's just sitting there grinning, like just smiling, no mask. And I looked down at her and we made eye contact. There was no like moment or anything like that. I just kind of like, we're just normal human. Like we saw each other and it, I felt she gave no judgment. She made no words. She didn't change the expression on her face. Just like. We happened to glance in each other's directions. Our eyes met for a couple seconds. It wasn't like I was, oh my God, I'm in love. It was not that moment. I felt deep, burning, searing shame that I was wearing a mask. Hmm. And I got off the train a half a minute later or whatever, not in front of her. I didn't take it off in the, on the spot. I got off of the train and very quietly just took my mask off, put it in my pocket. And I never wore one in the airport again. But what it reminds me of, I have to say, so I stopped wearing masks in the airports completely, which was against the rules. I think it was against FAA regulations or federal law or some bullshit. And um, I never wore them. I was usually the only person I would see in the entire airport not wearing them for a long time. It got better later. But I went at one point and I, I virtually never got called out for this four times. And I was in airports like, you know, every other day, yeah. four times only did I ever get called out for it. And it was only once by an airport worker. Every other time it was by some asshole some just random other person in the airport deciding to be the mall cop. But this one guy, and this is what it reminds This is the community moderators. I was at the gate. I was in O'Hare. I forget which gate it was, but it was in the, I think it was in the B terminal. And this dude, I was sitting as far away from the door as possible because I wasn't wearing a mask and I didn't want to be hassled. So I'm sitting way over as far away from where you actually board the plane as you possibly could be. And this guy who, if I saw at the grocery store, I would literally go directly home and go running, waddles his fat ass over to me and says, sir, if you don't put a mask on, I'm not going to let you fly today. He escalated to full, full authority in one step. And I was like, fuck this guy. That's who takes over the community boards. People who have got a little bit of taste of power, they yeah. can contour the world around them to suit the their favored uh, 
proclivities and mental illnesses and whatever else. And then they they relish getting to use that power to smack other people around and make them behave the way that they think people should have to behave in all places. And it's a disordered way of living. It's a disordered way of thinking. And by the way, it's exactly the disordered way of thinking and living that classical liberalism is supposed to disempower. Uh, how? Your, how would classic, how would I as a classical feminist liberal? Is totally, con- no, like the feminist or the moralizing homophobic uh, Christian pastor guy or whatever, they are perfectly within their rights in a classical liberal system to come over to you and tell you why your behavior is completely unacceptable and under a system which you have freedom of conscience, belief, speech, and within the general rights of not injuring somebody else's life, liberty, or property, um, ability to speak and act, you can say, fuck you, just like Elon did. Fuck you. I don't care about your moralizing bullshit. I am not part of your church. So I don't care if you think homosexuality is a sin. I am not part of your feminist cult. So I don't care that you think I'm man spreading. I'm not closing my legs. I'm not hurting you. Move on. Hmm. Get bent. And you are perfectly within your right to do that because the fundamental axiom of classical liberalism is any of us at any time might actually be wrong. So, but you can't just go, uh, that's not the same thing as saying we're going to shove out all mores, all public standards that we're not going to just say there's no such thing as decency just because some people think indecency is decent. Right. So there is like, there is like, there's gray areas. There's places where we, we need to debate where people need to do like, this is disgusting. This man's behavior is disgusting. And uh, I, I feel upset by it. And somebody might've been harmed by that. So we need to control, you know, we need to have public decency laws. So how, what, in your opinion, how do how does public decency, that kind of subjective, you know, culturally bound set of expectations be argued, mitigated when there is like this, this kind of you know, neutral ish, kind of zone between us like to what degree should we argue for decency should we say you know what your 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 argument for decency is actually authoritarian and that's why i'm not going to go along with your argument for decency but i'm going to be decent myself i'm kind of trying to skirt around this stupid topic that keeps on coming up with this guy in this dress on a mountain that just keeps on coming up. I still have people <laughs> now calling me a pedophile for having a children's song I wrote 13 years ago about some kid who has an accident and has to take care of the mess himself because the adult, the adult's not going to help him anymore. And that's somehow creepy now because I, you know, because I'm, I'm apologist for an auto pedo uh, apologist. Like they, they keep on thinking that I'm a bad person. They keep on thinking that I'm a part of their disgust reflex and their disgust is a democratic process of purifying the public square to make it safe for these vulnerable people, for these children and these battered women and stuff like that. So I kind of understand where they're coming from, but they're going a little too far from it. And I don't know if I can speak reason to them, but I do know that I'm really wary of just allowing them to like, just tell everybody what to do. But I do want people to act within a certain like realm of, of, you know, decency. Well, I mean, you can draw some lines around decency pretty simply. Um, Like, for example, it's never been, it's sometimes a bit controversial as to what constitutes obscenity, but uh, certainly the obscene, some dude, you know, walking around with his wiener hanging out is probably doing a public or actual fetish gear, like leather, leather, you know, like nipple tassels or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, these things are not super, super controversial. The gray areas, um, what they constitute are things that there are kind of two, as far as I can, like on the on the spot, I can think of two kind of broad categories of gray area. One gray area is the socially transgressive but legal, right? So yeah. it's according to what you might have called back in the day a reasonable person standard, it's a bit shocking to the conscience. The dude in a dress on a mountain might actually qualify for this or something. The dude in the yeah. dress certainly at a conference might qualify for this. Like, dude, why are you in a freaking dress, right? Okay, so it's shocking to the conscience, but it's legal, right? So this is one broad gray area. The way that that typically has been policed is to let what I just described play itself out over and over and over again. If you're hearing kind of constantly, dude, what are you doing? 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 Or people kind of going away from you. The idea is that eventually you're going to try to change your behavior. I don't see you trying to change your behavior. I'm sorry, James, but it's been like, what? No, like if I went out wearing 2019, I'm just saying on Twitter, like, like people try to police your tone, tone your behavior and like over and over and over and over again. But so... I'm just saying, you know, That's, you, there is a hijack to that, which is to create yeah. the struggle session, which is the other of the two gray areas. But mm. in this one, though, like okay. literally, like, let's say that I decided for whatever reason to wear something, I, I don't know, on the edge of acceptable, like fetishish or something. Like, I don't even know what the fuck that would be, but like let's a, just like a bow tie, a pink bow tie, a little tiny. No, it's got to be something yeah. a little weirder than that, okay. but whatever. Or let's just do something silly. Like I'm just going to wear like cat ears all the time. Right. <laughs> okay. so it's just a, see that reaction right there. I'm going to get that a lot. Yeah. And at some point I'm probably going to sit there at my I house. I kind of like, I think there would be a, like an internet community. Maybe about I shouldn't cat boy cat James. Ears. That would probably like make you lucrative. Start a little only fans. Yeah. Well, you read Marcusa with cat ears on or something. There's yeah. Well, that's like when OnlyFans were tried to recruit me. I t- did I tell you that story? No, I didn't know, I didn't know that. You uh, OnlyFans tried to recruit me. This yeah, wasn't what, dad bod philosophy. Is that what it would be? Only OnlyFans came to me, and so yeah, the woman's the rep's name was Louisa, and I was mm-hmm. literally at like this super conservative evangelical Christian conference when it happened. So it was extra hilarious, like for me. <laughs> and I get this DM from her, and she's like. You know, we want you to be an influ- you're an influencer on Twitter. We want in other social media, we want you to be an influencer on Instagram. We'll give you this kind of favorable percentage breakdown. And I'm like, okay. And um, she was like, I was like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. Like, do you know what I do? And she was like, well, no, I know you kind of make videos and you're really popular and you're an influencer. So you could just make videos and put them on OnlyFans. It's a completely free speech, blah, blah, blah. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. Do you know, like I read philosophy like as a podcast, right? And she's like, okay. I was like, so like for OnlyFans, like I'm just spitballing based on what I know about the platform and his reputation. Would I say read philosophy in my underwear? And she said, you could. (laughs) I never joined OnlyFans. That's another weird uh, breaking down of boundaries. Like where you do have this website OnlyFans where people have this persona where they can make porn. Right. And, and you yeah. know, like, like what's, what's the difference between making porn and then just being normal person on Twitter and stuff. I interrupted you, the point you were making about like how we navigate this gray zone about the shock. Well, yeah. About me cat wearing cat ears, ears like which that. is that, um, 
I'm glad you said that because I couldn't remember why we were talking about OnlyFans because I would not have worn OnlyFans cat ears or whatever. But now I've got a I've got a backup plan. Frankly, yeah. James yeah. in his underwear wearing cat ears. It'll be the next com. phase. Yeah, that is that's phase two. Um, yeah, that's how I'm going to stop communism by by doing that. <laughs> uh, that's the plan. That's the new plan. It's the backup plan. Oh no! And so, yeah, I'll see everybody's imagining you as a femboy. Is she? No, no. My point was that if I get laughed at for doing something that's transgressive but legal, right, or get a lot of comments, it might actually start to weigh on me that maybe I don't want a lot of those comments all the damn time. Yeah. Right. And so maybe I will start to modify my behavior voluntarily because it is when you are being socially transgressive but legal, people do give you funny looks. People, I mean, I, it's not hard to imagine even just bad fashion. Like nobody's going to criminalize ugly clothes, but you get weird looks. So maybe you start trying to dress better. Like what the heck's wrong with me? Right. Why are people always like weird around me? Oh, well maybe it's because like I'm rolling up my jeans to my knees every day and walking around like I'm Huckleberry Finn or something. I don't know. Uh, And, but it's it's, in that system. It's it's up to your conscience to dictate how you yeah. change your behavior, right? But that's because it's transgressive but legal. There are two hacks to transgressive but legal. One is that you can pressure test the system by organizing people to do that a lot, and that's literally woke activism, intentionally to try to break down the idea of it being transgressive or to force the hand of making it illegal, which is the reaction. That's the decision dilemma you put people in by. It's it's one thing if you got like a couple of weirdos doing weird stuff or people choosing bad fashion or whatever here and there. It's another thing if you have a coordinated movement to keep pressure testing the system. In other words, to do like the the velo- fake velociraptors in Jurassic Park and testing the electric fence to find its weaknesses, to find out where that system breaks. That's one hack against that system. and there needs to be thought of ways to handle that within a broadly non-authoritarian system. And that's not wholly clear beyond exposing that there is a coordinated attempt to do so and who's coordinating it and what their motivations might be. Or you just become the opposite of the woke scolds or else you just organize and have democratic displays of disgust. I mean, that's one way to do it. You know, you just count. Yeah, there are are things. So a second hack to that kind of bleeds into the second broad category, which is that people can start to declare that that which is transgressive but legal is actually way beyond transgressive. It's actually anathema. It's not distasteful. It's not something we um, tolerate under one set of circumstances what might say something about or give looks to like you normally, if somebody was dressing or behaving erratically, but not in a way where you feel like you need to call the law, you might you know, you might not say anything, but you might like look at them and give them that disapproving look so that social mediation happens. Well, it's possible also like our friends that are feminists to turn the sensitivity knob up to 15 and flip out about everything that even whiffs of some behavior you don't like. This is the Puritan impulse. And that is another form of a problem. And then it defines the second broad area of this situation, which is where you have, um, you have, I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. Uh, it. It is that situation where you have something that's 
only mildly objectionable that's treated as though it's horrifically objectionable, which is, like I said, the Puritan impulse. And uh, that you're going to purify the entire area of um, any transgressive symbolism, as a matter of fact, is what you're ultimately doing. Um, And that is another, that is, in fact, a form of, of social authoritarianism, because you're trying to set dictates on legal behavior that you find so disapproving that you think that spaces need to affect a policy or the equivalent uh, in order to completely police the area of that behavior. And um, I don't I just, think that as a really kid of my acceptable. generation, you know, like a nineties, uh, you know, I came of age in the nineties, born in the seventies. Like I've just like, you know, I, I grew up a Christian, but I was still like the Christian, like the, the Christian, right. You know, like that, but there was weird, it, there, you know, Tipper Gore was a Democrat, but she really wanted to put all the, you know, the labels on the music, you know, and like, there was just like, there's a lot of like negotiation around censorship when I was coming of age, you know? So I'm always kind of distrusting when somebody needs to go into censorship territory or when they make overtures that inevitably have to lead to censorship. You inevitably have to say, we are going to have a sex-based dress code and it's going to be conservative. And if they just admit that, then we can say, okay, well, what are women, like, where's the trade-off? What are women again? Are the women going to put away their fannies? Are they going to stop wearing yoga pants? Are they going to, they going to put bras on? Is that where we're going to go? You know, is, is that what we want to really do? But they don't, they, it's like they want to go right up to that point and then say, well, I don't really want a police discourse. We're not going to have the institutions do anything about this, but we're going to, ra- we're just going to rapidly tear apart anybody who doesn't go along with what we think of as proper behavior, which is fine, but it's just like, it doesn't seem to be reasonable. Like you can't really argue with these people because then you get thrown under the bus too. It's just... That's why I've been trying to tell people for years, because people always bring up the so-called substitution hypothesis that we're substituting one religion for another religion Mm -hmm. and the lack, you know, the decline in religiosity. People are searching for meaning and this is where they find meaning. And no doubt there's some degree of that. But the psychosocial reasons behind religious adherence are pretty well established in the academic literature on psychology of religion. And one of them is, in fact, a meaning making structure. And another one is to define social groups. Um, and the third one is a control axis. It is to obtain a sense of whether it's genuine or not, a sense of control over the environment you find yourself in and yourself. And what I've been saying is that the woke phenomenon is not best characterized for most of its adherents by filling it. Well, at least that's complicated because there are like what I would Why can't gently it be call the outer school. Yeah. The the, the the people who have just kind of picked it up, the idiot woke, and then yeah. there's like the hard woke, which are like the inner school of woke thought. The outer school is there for social reasons and meaning making. They just want to be a good person. They want to fit in, blah, blah, blah. The inner school is there on a control axis malfunction. They want to be able to control the milieu that is it, literally they want to affect what's called milieu control in cult psychology literature. And those people are not responding to the pressures for sociality and meaning making. Those people are responding to a feeling as as if the society that they find themselves in or the social environment that they find themselves in or the psychological environment they are in themselves is out of control and they need Mm -hmm. to regulate it in order to regain control of it. So it's a control access problem. And if you try to medicate the fact that you have busybodies who have occupied positions of authority who are control access issues by filling in meaning some other way 
in a way that may actually be alienated and disconnected from the group you're trying to affect, which is that outer school wokey group, um, you are going to have a huge problem in solving the problem. And what you're seeing right now in live, like playing out live, is that, I mean, the general rule with drugs is that as you desensitize to a drug, as you acclimatize, what's the word for that? Um, do you know the word? Like if I need five drinks today to get drunk, but I need yeah, seven tolerance. drinks. Tomorrow. You develop yeah, tolerance. Yeah, your tolerance. It, yeah, there's a name for this. Yeah, there's, there's anyway, a, is, yeah. That a, is that occurs, right? As that occurs, what you need is not a different drug. Usually, you need a harder drug, typically. So the people who are these Wokies just trying to feel like good people and just trying to fit in, blah, 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 and they're there on a meaning-making and maybe even social, but primarily meaning-making vacuum uh, axis, those people are not going to be satisfied by anything except extremism, which is why you're watching them now, like you're watching the non-binary dude, blatantly a dude, dancing around saying he started to read the Quran and is having a religious experience, and now he's going to become a Muslim, and it's like, you should just keep reading a little more of your Quran and see what it says about some of the, your life choices um, mm -hmm. while you're at it, and then look around in the world and see how they practice that, uh, you know, just out of, just out of consistency. Um, cafeteria Islam is not really this huge thing <laughs> as far as mm -hmm. I understand. But um, what you, what they're going to turn to is something harder. And so in a sense, these kind of Christian nationalist Theo bro hard asses sort of have a point. They don't have the, a good point in the sense of it's a good idea, but they have a point, which is that the only kind of Christianity that's going to pull these people back is the kind that's actually a harder drug than woke intolerance. In other words, it's got to be even more intolerant, even more extreme, even more collectivist, mm -hmm. even more cultic in order to attract that attention. It would be far better to start convincing of these people, convincing these people, A, that the woke cult that they're in is actually not that great. It's not making them their lives better. It's not making them happy. It's not producing good social environments. And B, more, more importantly, with cult deprogramming, that it is okay to leave. There are so many people, you hear this from detransitioners a lot. I'm sure you've talked to them. There are so many people who are in and they stay in, even though they don't love being in, because nobody's given them permission to leave yet. Nobody, it's, it's, the weight of being wrong is too high. They, they, so they're caught just on this weird like momentum that creates a, a potential well that keeps them inside. And once they understand, hey, I walked away too. Hey, I had it wrong and now I feel like I woke up from a cult. That's why Brandon Straka's walk away movement was so big. That's why I put a feel like a feeler out woke on away. Twitter the other night, which was the woke up. Oh, I woke, woke up. up. Okay. Yeah, yeah woke up. Away. I, woke I would love gone. to see. I don't want to do it. Like I'm not coordinating that, but I would love to see somebody <laughs> take that torch and run to the top of Rainier and shine a light down to the entire world of I woke up. There are a lot of people who either left the cult of thinking conservatives are de facto evil, or that woke is like good and making social environments better, and they woke up. And I've heard it from hundreds or at, at least hundreds, maybe thousands of people that it felt like I left a cult. It felt like I was leaving a cult over and over and over again. Get those stories going because those stories are going to convince that vast group 
that they have permission to step away from something they already feel like is probably kind of toxic without having this, this, this feeling like they need to step into something even more radical in a different direction as a complete rejection. And yeah. what's funny for me with this post-liberal Theobro bullshit is an NRX, whatever we want to call it, is it's, they, they're so angry and down on the new atheist movement, but it's literally, they are like the new atheist for the woke. They're like the extreme, let's turn around and throw the rocks at the cathedral that, that like we were kind of huh. sucked in on this and we're super pissed off that it got us. Like the atheist movement went full ass woke, not because it was atheist, but because it was overwhelmingly filled with pissed off feminists and gay activists who left Christianity that they felt it felt like was oppressing them. So these guys are going to try to soak up a bunch of people who were either lightly woke or felt oppressed by woke or trapped by woke, and they're going to turn around and throw rocks at the cathedral, but they're literally just becoming the same idiotic thing, which is kind of why all the same patterns play out in those those places. Hmm. You know, so back to the uh, social policing thing. So I've, I've been, I keep on getting messages like, Benjamin, I'm so disappointing. I'm so disappointed in you for not understanding women's point of view on this guy wearing a dress. And, and I'm like, I, I don't not see your point of view. Wait, I'm wait, worried wait. about I... what's behind the point of view. So like yeah, you're saying like- stop real quick there yeah. about an important point and then I want to come back. I want, I don't want to interrupting you too much, but Benjamin- I'm so distraught and upset that you don't understand women's point of view. Bullshit! You don't understand particular some women who are speaking for all women as a class because they think they have a Gnostic understanding of what it really means to be a woman. That You don't understand their cult view of what it means to be a woman's perspective about the man in a dress. They are not speaking for all women, and we've got to get in the habit of this right here, this, this manipulative tactic that, and it's not just feminists, feminists claim to speak for all women. Every effing time they open their mouths, they say women. Every time you say something to any woman whatsoever, all of a sudden you say, I think feminism caused problems. They will translate it to, James said women cause problems. No, I fucking didn't. I said feminists cause problems, and most women actually aren't feminists. And you have 11, no, actually like 27 definitions of feminism, none of which agree with each other. So feminist isn't even a specific enough term to be able to use in any context whatsoever, ever, anywhere, at any time, in yeah. terms of what women or feminists think. So that's bullshit. But it happens too. BLM did not actually, as it turns out, speak for black people very well. The queer community, if you want to even call it a community, the queer activists do not speak for lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and whatever the hell else, and all trans people for certain. They certainly do not speak for the people who are detransitioning. They speak against them vigorously and viciously, almost as though they're like Muslims who are pissed off in an apostate. This is exactly this idea that the, the, the Gnostic representative of the class becomes the avatar of the class and the only true spokesperson for the class is the magic spell. So, Benjamin, I know you understand the stupid feminist oh, yeah, perspective yeah, yeah, yeah. on this. Well, And I also understand that you <laughs> recognize that it's not the women's perspective on this. But let's just yes. take five minutes there and break this feminist bullshit spell that mm -hmm. feminism and women are identical because they no. are most certainly not. They're not. They're not. And that's probably where it all, like, that's probably the, the, the thank you very much for pointing that out. Cause I, I was just jumping into their frame without going through and saying like, wait, women and parents are against me now. Like, like, are you talking about 5 billion people? That doesn't make any sense, but whatever. No, like 2% of 
of women that are actually active online or to online are probably mad at you and like nobody else. Yeah. It doesn't really scale, but the, you know, people are disappointed because I don't understand women's point of view. So it's not women's point of view. It's this particular point of view. And I do understand the point of view, but like you were saying with like the inner church and the outer church, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to be used your, mm-hmm, your feelings mm-hmm. of disgust, your feeling of righteous indignation, your feeling, which is warranted in our culture right now, that things are falling apart and kids and women are being thrown under the bus, that feeling can be used to implement more and more authoritarian measures. And so I can, like, there, like there's, one, there's a way of saying, okay, that's correct, but how do we implement this? How do we go about implementing decency laws? How do we reform society? How do we do that? Like, do we impose I think that dress codes or no? With, no, I think it can't start with policy. It has to start with people. I think that that's actually and so, one And thing. so that outcropping or like the outburst of disgust is the people speaking. It's a democratic movement to... No, no, no. It's some know. people speaking. It's not the people speaking. Well, that's, well then how do, we, how do we navigate that? So can we have a vote? How no, do we, how we don't do we need do a vote. You do it exactly. If I said, you said the people are saying, or Trump said, a lot of people are saying, what would be the, ne- if you were a real hardcore journalist and Trump said, a lot of people are saying that Benjamin Boyce is not very sensitive to the women. A lot of people are saying it. What would you say back? Uh, show me the people. Which people? In other which words, people? which individuals? That's yes. right. That's yes. actually the mi- mindset we have to start getting back to. You don't understand the women's perspective. No, you don't understand a perspective held by a contingent of individuals. Well, I was saying I do understand it, but my point's something else. But you do understand it. That's that's also true. But it's also this is another point that I wanted to bring up about cult logic. You you don't understand it unless you agree. In fact, you haven't engaged it properly if you don't don't agree, because if you engage it properly, you will naturally agree, because that's what happens when you're in the cult. When you engage with cult material, you agree with cult material. So by definition, when they say you don't understand, if they're speaking from a cultic position, what they're actually saying is you don't agree because if you understood it, you would naturally agree. So there's yet another mystification happening there. But the, the answer, where we start changing people, it's not with what policy do we implement or what this or what that. It's we've really got to start advising people that that question, that dragging people to the specific. People are saying, okay, which people? That's what that's that that's that's what uh, lives a TikTok does extremely successfully when she gets smeared by the media all the time. Well, people on Twitter are trying to take your tweet and they're going to do blah 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 in Idaho. Okay, which people? Which tweet? Which specific actions? What are their names? Where are they doing it? When did they do it? Did they say in response to this tweet? Which tweet was it? This kind of like vague people are saying insinuation like toxic feminine attack. This isn't this 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 has got to stop. And the way that you stop it is by asking for specifics. Which individuals are saying what specific things? No, no, no. Women, you don't understand women's no, you don't understand the perspective of certain women is the claim being made, but you do actually understand it as you've articulated multiple times. So the this is why articulating what an individual is at a deep philosophical level, yeah, like we were talking about earlier, yeah. matters. Yeah. I actually was reading through this again earlier because I was doing a podcast about a similar topic. I don't know if you saw the essay I wrote recently that was uh, the basis of classical liberalism that starts off with, we are not God. But um, the third to last sentence, I was trying to see how it it all counts out. The third to last sentence, um, or I guess that and the sentence before it. So 
number four and number three to the last at the very Are you end. I yourself actually or... give. What's that? Are you going to quote it yourself? Just I'm going to quote myself. I said, okay. "Individual belief is sacrosanct, not because any man is God, but because every man is not. The individual is politically inviolate because he is the vessel of his own sacrosanct individual beliefs." And so, what I'm saying here is that the theory of the individual that builds out of that is, mm-hmm. in fact that the individual is his own belief engine. So if you want to be able to self-determine in your life according to your own set of beliefs, you must start with the belief that the individual is the geni- the, 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 the originating point of belief. It is the container, in fact, of belief. So the individual is understood as a person who can interact mm-hmm. with the world and believe things about it. What people like Marx did was, and Marx said this explicitly in the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts and in other places, is that man, in fact, is not individual in that way at all. Man inherits a set of beliefs from the previous, uh, from the prevailing culture in the previous generations. And he said that those beliefs weigh on man like a nightmare. Hmm. Like all the stuff that people have accomplished up to this point weighs on you like a nightmare. And um, I'm trying, that's not an economic philosophic manuscript. So I'm trying to remember which thing that's in, but that he did write that in one of his pieces. All these people who say I don't read Marx, I like quote him from memory. I just don't remember which piece it is this time. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know don't what agree. page it's on. You don't agree and therefore you're not listening, James. Yeah, right. Exactly. So what what he's saying, though, is that we are actually conditioned. Our thoughts are actually massively, our set of beliefs is massively conditioned and delimited by the social environment we find ourselves in, in a way that is, well, his his doctrine was material determinism, um, which impacted on the the creativity and limitations of somebody's uh, capacity to think. Um, the left claims that what it's doing is trying to break free of all of that social conditioning, but that's not what the real project is. The individual is the locus of the beliefs, and if the belief contains a question about that, say, social programming or historical uh, context or milieu, then the individual has to be protected in his ability to believe individually, in other words, in a heterodox fashion, to question the weight of that authority. But that doesn't happen through collective action or through awakening to a mystical consciousness, which is what Marx called class consciousness and they call critical Mm -hmm. consciousness or race consciousness or feminist consciousness or whatever, queer consciousness. Now you have, what, what, what we really have is the ability for any individual to say, wait a minute, I'm not sure. And if you don't protect that, then you have tyranny. Then you have authoritarianism. Well, the you have to um, you have to uh, the individual isn't without context. Like the individual in what context are you talking about? Like the individual who's in urban in the urban context, the individual who is online, the individual who is in you know like a farming community. Like all of those I don't different believe contexts that their context have different... determine the range of their thoughts really at all. No. Especially not with books or the internet. You can go read whatever you want to read. You can go explore ideas about whatever it is you want to think about. 
sure the, you're going to explore ideas about things that you're you've come in contact with but yeah but the, the personal bonds that we make with our community like shape us as individuals like if i live in a small town and i have like probably let's just say i have 500 people that are going to know me from the day i'm born to the day i'm die and like if i so if i mess up in that context like i'm very known all of my mistakes and my triumphs are, are very known i i'm responsible to this community and i'm also like like i'm bound to this community by being perceived by this community uh, within that community i have you know i have a certain context of individual but if i'm living in like five, a mega city with 50 million 5 million people and i could just like drop out of one group and pop into another group and drop out of that group and pop into another group according to whatever my tastes dictate of me like what is the depth of individuality am i going to have if i don't really have the burden of following through and being responsibility being responsible to other people like those social bonds determine a lot how deep we grow as individuals as human beings and the Individual. So I'm. I, I hear you mapping out like a, a, a like a philosophical version of the individual, but there's like the social man to use like the Marxist term that I think is really real. Like in like my how how people perceive me over time on the internet. Who Benjamin is? Like is he a creep? Is he a weirdo? Is he like an anti woke person? Is he this or is he that? Or is he all of the above and just the guy who's trying to find his way? Like over time, I think I'm more real than like any given container that people put me in, which the internet wants to facilitate people pegging me into their little box of evil or hero and then like have done with me. So I I just think that the, the individual as a concept is much bigger than that. And that's why people go and find religion, because religion maps out a deeper meaning or maps out a path towards uh, deeper meanings or deep, uh, deeper practices and exercises to grow as a human being that you don't necessarily that's find outside of that. Yeah. But who grows? Who grows? Yeah. The individual. Oh, yeah. Whoops. Well, no, but the individual, the individual also, uh, the individual is a brief moment in time between the time where I can uh, pay for my, you know, situation and when I can't pay for my situation. So it's very time dependent too. Like I'm not an individual in the womb. I'm not an individual for the first 10 years of my life. And then I go through the process of individuation, right? And then when mm -hmm. I get old and like my faculties decay, I need to have that context of people loving and caring me beyond the faculty, that agency that claim me as an individual. So even though the individual is a very important part of the process, it's not the sum total of what a human being is. No, we're, I mean, we're a social species that, that yeah. doesn't, that, that's, in fact, I think the technical term is ultra social species. Oh. Um, yeah, we're not merely social. We literally depend upon one another uh, in networks of whether they're tribes or communities or whatever else or families. We depend on one another in order to, to be able to live in our environment. So we are ultra social, um, not just to prosper and flourish, but actually to survive uh, mm -hmm. so yes, of course that, but at the end of the day, every single interaction is with an individual with one or more other people. It is still at the end of the day, individuals who are vessels of their own beliefs, vessels of their own thoughts, vessels of their own subjectivity mm -hmm. that are interacting with the external world and other people. So if we don't have a robust theory of who that person is, and we mm -hmm. think, oh, well, he's just a farm boy. Well, is he just a farm boy? Hmm. No, He's just a city boy. Me. Is yeah. he? Yeah. 
No. No. The, I mean, it's kind of like the whole blank slate argument with John Locke. Like he said there were blank slates. We're not blank slates. There are genetic imprints that are incredibly uh, significant, very significant, as a matter of fact. I think that I've given the metaphor before of a uh, canvas or like a paper mache face that you're then painting on. You're not painting on a blank, flat canvas. You're painting on like a contoured structure that looks like a face or mm-hmm. could be any other shape. It doesn't really matter. Um, but as you move around and look at it, no matter what kind of a paint job you give it, you're still going to be able to detect that it's got an th- underlying three-dimensional contour to it. That's like the stuff that you start with. And yes, your social environment that you find yourself in, that you, in the Heideggerian sense, if we want to be Gnostic about it, are flung into. Oh no. <laughs> that we're flung into being a farm boy or flung into being a city boy or flung into a shitty high school or flung into a prep squad or whatever we're thrown into, the thrownness of being, oh my God, what a tragedy. What a mm. prison. Um, Do you think he was he had that, a para, parachute philia? Like he just loved that. He was like sitting down on the fields of World War One, and he just saw the men jumping out of the airplanes, and he came up with this whole thrownness thing. A pair of I, that's a good you. question. I mean, Heidegger is fucked up. I don't know. We try not to think too much about Heidegger when we can avoid it. Um, okay. But <laughs> he's got big but words. The, I mean, it's, it's I mean, yeah. philosophers in general, like for God's sake. Hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> and ninety-eight you are percent being garbage. Ninety-eight percent counterproductive. That whole discipline. Two percent. Hmm. Okay, great. Um, but hmm. isn't that every field though? Well, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, no, podcasting. Really I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Pretty good, actually. Is it? But okay. uh, yeah. that's almost like so. If we have like the contoured canvas, that's like having like that's like the the initial set of. Like the initial, what's it called, a palette where all the colors are that you're going to paint with. Yeah. But you're not even necessarily limited to that. You can actually go and experience other parts of life and other parts of the world and, as you said, grow as an individual. And in a sense, add new, just to stretch the metaphor, add new, like being, let's say, a, a city boy is like only having a bunch of different grays because it's concrete. Or being a farm boy is like only having a bunch of different colors of ochre. But then you can go and, you know, have a trip to the Mediterranean and all of a sudden you got some blues and greens or whatever that you can throw on your palette. And then the painting that you make of who you are can become more complex and nuanced and different and whatever. In other words, that's not super fixed. The leftist belief currently under woke is what's called structural determinism, that the societal structures like systemic mm-hmm. racism, oppression, blah, 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 actually contour your personality at such a profound level that you are unable to see anything beyond the contouring of your life through the social environment that you're thrown into, which is in fact a dynamic of oppression, which you are either perpetrating or a victim of, uh, or in some intersectional way, some of both at the same time. Uh, supporting oppression is the general thing that everybody's doing in one way or another because the oppressive system and ideology convinces you that it's your role in life to do that. And that's just frankly bullshit. That's a absolute denial of the individual as a vessel of his own beliefs, his own questions, his own thoughts. Yeah. I'm not 
not an individualist. I mean, I'm not not a liberal. I'm just I, I'm 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 open as a good liberal. I'm open to the criticisms of it. I'm actually like I, I hunger for criticisms of it because that's where it makes it dynamic, and that's where like we get to prove it um, for for it against it. But ultimately, like. Ultimately, I would like people to have the conscience to dictate where they go, but we also need to, you don't, you're not just, I don't know, what do you think? You were not born with a conscience. Like we have to, we're like, not that's, born able to do calculus either, but you can teach people stuff. Yeah. So somebody's teaching people what's good and what's bad. And some people like don't know the line between what's appropriate and inappropriate and how we go about encouraging yeah, people to act. guy to learn calculus. It's able, you can able to determine when people are worthwhile teachers and when they're not and i mean not to go biblical on you benjamin but judge them by their fruit is a pretty strong piece yeah. of wisdom right there yeah like our pe like look at the people who are woke they're fucking miserable all the time they're outside yelling at buildings every day as far as i can tell it's a Those living i guess i mean i know they're getting paid to do it in a lot of cases yeah. but they're outside like screaming at buildings and that's the most ridiculous church service I've ever seen in my life. But that's exactly what I'm watching is a church service. Seems a little more uplifting to go to maybe something a little bit more uplifting. I, did I miss like the building screaming thing? Is that going on? Right? What are you referring to? Is there a video that I haven't seen? That's what yeah. they call protest. Oh, okay. they go outside Buildings. and they stand in the street and they scream at a building where something inside is happening that they don't like. Okay. Like, like maybe a Jew reading a book. Yeah, like a Jew existing, right a Moms for Liberty happening in any yeah. capacity whatsoever. Uh, yeah. Probably some somebody trying to turn on a fucking Christmas tree or something. Um, mm -hmm. They hmm. just scream at buildings. These are miserable people. Like, so judge them by their fruits. Like, if you were to take like your average ten year old who hadn't been, you know, indoctrinated at school and sit them down and say, look at these people screaming at a building and look at these people sitting down to like Thanksgiving dinner and have, having a nice turkey. Which one do you want, right? They don't want screaming at a building. Nobody wants yeah. that. That's crap fruit. Those people are not happy. And the results they're getting are usually not great. Um, and in fact, in the end, if you look historically, the results they achieve are very bad. They get their way and then they get lined up against a concrete wall and shot in the back of the head by people like me in the effort to convert me. I'm not saying I want to shoot them. I'm saying that's what communists do. Okay. Communists take other prisoners and have them shoot others in the effort to oh. try to injure them psychically or brainwash them. Yeah. 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 It's not a pretty thing. Can uh, Can I ask you, uh, there's a few uh, super chats. One, um, I, I, I'll go through a few of them. Um, actually, I'll go through them all because I'm a nice guy. But, Is Gator back? Um, a Gator hasn't been around for a while. He's popping in and out, I'm sure. He's got a lot of memes. He's, he's you know that nobody's ever seen me and Gator in the same room at the same time, except you? I am the one. Oh, no, you guys are going to come after me. So there's this thing called a vertically integrated messaging apparatus, which you'll need to explain before answering this question. Yeah. It's from Mike Ox. What, uh, James, what will the VIMA, vertically integrated messaging apparatus, Death Star, point us at next? Yeah, hey, Mike. Mike's cool, by the way. Uh, he's a good dude. Um, I've met Mike in person a couple times. He's a good guy. So um, the vertically integrated messaging apparatus, uh, at least the, I don't know if that exact phrasing, because I might have messed it up, and if so it's on me, but it's definitely due to Wes Yang, Wesley Yang. So let's give him credit for coming up with the idea that the messaging apparatus that we deal with, which is like the politicians, the national news, the local news, 
the commercials, the what you see coming out of every level of messaging, whether it's from advertising or politics or from local, big, small, medium-sized news outlets, the, every newspaper, it's all integrated so that it basically says the same thing. And in fact, mm -hmm. it echoes it from its different um, locations so that it feels like that's the only message. And so that's the vertically integrating integrated messaging apparatus. What the vertical, vertically integrated messaging apparatus or Vima tends to do, it works like a propaganda Death Star. It's like all the different, you know, if you, when the Death Star shoots its beam, it's like it's got that crater just for the people yeah. who haven't watched Star Wars. And like little beams appear at like eight different or 10 different places around the circle. And then they converge in a way that defies all of physics in one spot, like a like like the poles of a teepee. And then that beam goes out and blows up a planet. So that's like the different spots around the circle would be like the vertical, the different pieces of the vertical integration apparatus. And then they create a propaganda beam that completely deranges people. And it basically puts out the new current thing. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. when you see the memes mm -hmm. of like the, you know, hypnotizing the, the NPC robot character yeah. with, you know, whether it's Ukraine yeah, yeah, or yeah. Palestine or whatever, changing the chip. That's what the v, that's what the vertically integrated messaging apparatus is designed to do: is to get everybody to land in a reflexive environment, thinking about the same thing in the same way, or to become its dialectical opposite by rejection. Okay, so the question was, what do I think it'll point at next? I keep saying this: critical immigration theory is coming. There's going to be a full court press. If I had to guess, I might be wrong. I am wrong sometimes. Um, but I would very strongly suspect, and I'm already seeing the rumblings. I don't know what big world event will be the next current thing, but there is going to be a immigrants good, people who don't support immigrants, bad, racist, xenophobic, bigot, blah, 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 push how, how um, immigrants have a, for whatever set of various reasons based in either critical race theory or third worldist post-colonial theory, or just kind of some woke mutant or Marxism or whatever else, they have some intrinsic right to be able to enter into other places, particularly the West, places that colonize them or represent colonial occupation in some way or another. They have a yeah. right to enter in. And if you don't extend basically, literally the full benefits of citizenship to them, that's because you're a racist, a xenophobic bigot, something, blah, blah, blah. And so the immigrant is going to take the place of the, the black person in CRT or the woman in feminism or the trans in queer theory or whatever else. And they're going to become this new supreme victim. An entire critical theory that looks exactly like all the others is going to get spun around this. I think What's, what's her name? Brianna Joy Gay or something like that put out some tweet today that everybody was sharing that looks like, you know, there it is. Here it comes. Critical immigration theory. But I think it's going to be like immigrant good people who want to limit immigration or deport illegal uh, border jumpers. I don't even want to call them immigrants because they're, they, they're, they're just illegal aliens. People who want to deport them. Those are the worst kind of people. They're bad. They're far right wing. They're conservative. They're blah, 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 whatever all the bad words are. And I think that the messaging apparatus is going to beat that drum like crazy over the next several months. So this this is a this is a spicy topic. So we have uh, is the Israel Palestine conflict, and there that th and that's that's really interesting because of what it's doing to the vertical uh, message vertically, and because like it can't all be on one side or the other of that thing. It's yeah, just like going all in one direction, but no, basically. Right. 
you have like it's it's impossible to talk about this thing but you have that thing going on like like does israel as a nation have its sovereignty what's that sovereignty based on is it based on an ethno nationality is it based on a belief system and then you have what's happening in ireland where the irish people are trying to have self-determination too. And the message apparatus is like, okay, uh, Israel's not that far right wing because we can't go there because they're part of like, they're part, but Ireland is far right wing, even though they're kind of doing the same thing, trying to like have like, uh, you know, a cohesive identity that has a mixture of cultural and ethnic uh, vectors on it. So it's just, I don't know how that scales. I don't know how it works out. It's just like, you look at it, and you're like, this doesn't quite make sense. How are people making sense of this? And oh, I can tr- I can find it on the map. That's what I'm trying to show you. Look, it's oh yeah, yeah. The piece in the middle. I'm east. not going to move him backwards, but I know where it is. There up where there we are. You poke it. I can find it on a map. Um, yeah. Okay. So what's funny? What's okay? So the it's it's really simple. What's happening with Ireland? The those are those are white people, so they can just do this. And it's really simple. Um, it's actually really, really, really easy. Uh, don't potato splain. That would be really inappropriate of you to say that Irish people are in any way oppressed. It's actually sometimes called potato splaining, by the way. You can look that up. Um, it's kind of hilarious. But oh, with Israel, they bit off more than they can chew. It's like they tried to take a gigantic bite of something and they like can't handle all of it in their mouths. So you've got the Democrats like realizing that their donor base and like a lot of the rest of the vertically integrated messaging apparatus they depend on all is Jewish or Jewish adjacent. So they're like, oh shit, I I have no like good faith interpretations of the Democrat Democratic Party left. I think it's mm-hmm. all cynical. So it's like their donors and their media lackeys and whatever other oily corrupt deals they've made have put uh, are, are frequently Jewish. And so they're like, uh Oh, can't piss them off too much. But then their left flank, which is the radicals that really control the party are like, you know, from the river to the sea, let's just burn this sucker down. Um, mm-hmm. And literally there, I mean, it was it turned out that it was Soros's foundation that paid for a bunch of activists to go attack the DNC physically uh, hmm. a few weeks ago. Uh, that got hmm. found out. So the far left is okay. trying to consolidate power to the pro Hamas side of this. And I'm not going to say pro Palestinian because I think I saw the best phrasing for that on the internet. And I'm just going to get us all banned from YouTube forever, which is that Palestine oh. is the only nation that, that didn't exist until after it was occupied, which is really kind of funny, but true, awkwardly true. Um, I'm going to get, you're all Zionist now, oh, Benjamin. No. Just put a big star of David around our heads. We're ready to go. Make it spin or something. Do the one with like the do the fucking. Never mind. I'm not even gonna this go is there. Such a spicy. Never fucking mind. Do the one with the snake. I feel like we're on Newsmax now. We're just doing like let's take let's this. let's do a whole let's go full Peugeot here. The symbols don't matter. Um, that's that was. <laughs> Gator only Jake, appears when you need him most. That's all the time, Gator. What the hell? Yeah, he's always uh, on YouTube. He's got to come That's back. aside from the point. They bit off more than they can chew, though, because they are now caught between the radical left flank and basically a lot of their donor and messaging yeah. base. Um, and it's really a little bit delicious to watch. Um, the conclusion of that will probably be concentration of power to the left um, as they figure out how to start triaging the funding, I have a feeling. But I'm not 100% sure. Gavin came out with his 
totally 100% like not politically oriented around the DeSantis debate moment coming up statement that Hamas is evil or whatever. Um, Schumer said his thing. It's eh. okay. But on the other hand, Fetterman stood up for Israel from the first day, you know, yeah, Frankenstein, as it were, or whatever they call him, Bigfoot. What was the Babylon Bee Bigfoot sighted outside of the Capitol? <laughs> no, Fetterman walking no. by in his wetsuit. It's the funniest <laughs> one I've seen in a long time. But uh, Fetterman came out pro-Israel, and they're struggle sessioning his ass hard. So um, turns out that you know mental impairment, okay. Uh, support for Israel, not okay. Democratic priorities. Uh, but yeah, I think what's happened is that bit off more than the global left can chew, and it's causing a big mess for them. Uh, but luckily yeah. for the global left and the Democrats, that big mess has manifested itself on the right too, which is just super. So that is what my question was going to, or going back to an uh, earlier point that you made, that if uh, critical immigration theory would be the, uh, I don't know, the thesis, then the antithesis or the negation, which would reify it, would be like a white ethno push? Is that like, how do you... Oh, how, yeah, of course. What, what's the wrong way to respond to that? And what's the correct way to respond to it? Exactly what you just choice? said, white identity politics and uh, rampant nationalism. Uh just Do Irish lives saying, matter, giant, uh, James? Can you can you answer that? that one? Do Irish yeah. lives matter? Yeah. Okay. That wasn't hard. Okay. Good job. That was really easy. That was the but easiest. That part. that's still like that. That is like. So that's white people. Like you're not supposed to let white people have their little. No, that's okay. No, it's okay to be white. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that shit. Fuck. No. Okay. No. Yeah. Oof. Um, so, but at some point you cross the line. At some point you cross the line, right? So they're looking Can't for a negation. They're looking for an antithesis. Yeah, that's right. They are. So the right thing to do is to advocate that the uh, that the laws be upheld and not changed to accommodate, which means immigration laws are upheld. That is going to involve an awful lot of deportation. That's going to involve that the regular laws are upheld. And it may involve uh, pathways to action for people who have immigrated to, if they violate the laws too egregiously, get deported as well. Um, that that's, It's a fine line that's going to have to be drawn. As far as, by the way, with the immigration theory, you have to remember that the left's perspective on Israel is that the Israelis are the immigrants that have come in. Or sorry, are the Israelis are the occupiers. And so the Palestinian or the Hamas people are the immigrants that are coming in to try to get their, their position back. There's no such thing as reverse immigration or colonialization in other words um they have every right to go back and try to colonize whatever space whether it's in ireland or in israel oh uh, wait what because decolonization is going to come for israel that's what decolonization has already hit israel what are you talking about Okay, but uh, hit, not hit Israel, Israel. I'm sorry, Ireland. Sorry, really hard. IR, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I meant Ireland. Like decolonizing oh, Ireland too. means importing a bunch of people from other continents into Ireland. That's how you decolonize right. Ireland. Well, that and making sure that the laws are favorable to them and not uh, favorable to the indigenous Irish people. Don't use the word indigenous. Well, but it's a flip. But, yes. Like it just like like yes. like how is it cohesive? Unless you go into some sort of globalist way of thinking, it's like okay, well, if we dispossess these people, then it kind of makes sense that we're just circulating like different interest groups around for. Well, here's how purposes. it's cohesive. Is it Western? It needs to be broken. That's how okay. it's cohesive. That's the whole logic. 
Okay. Ireland is a Western country. Break it. Israel is connected to Western interests. Britain, the United States. Break it. Okay. What? Why? Why the is the West Europe, so break it? Bad. America, I thought we were pretty cool. It. Canada. We were doing good. It. We were doing really what? good. We brought like iPhones to people. Like we we brought roads. I don't know. I don't know why why the why the West so bad. Because, well, I mean, there are different answers to this that different people. Uh, that different Can I trigger you for two pounds or two lira? Democrat two, democracy yeah, is the question. Lira, that's that's worth that's that's not even worth play money. Okay, I can't believe that guy gave us lira. <laughs> Monarchy is the answer. Democracy is the question. Monarchy is the answer. Yeah, those are words. Okay, those are words. Those are okay. those are words. And then Gustavo Luis says, internet opened the door to the world, talk to the Americans. A lot of people that don't understand the American ethos are now talking to Americans. This is a civilization DDoS attack, a problem that liberalism has to deal with. I think that's interesting. I, I suppose, with which has to deal. Um, DDoS, so what is that, a denial of service? Um, yeah, that's where you like spam a, spam a website so it has to shut down. I mean, you could say that, I guess, but um, you can talk to Americans and not agree with them. Like, lots of people do that. It's okay. Uh, do it all the, time. the internet opened up talking to Americans. Um, we've been like coming over to your place and mucking up your beaches for years. What are you talking about, dude? Mm, mucking up a beach. Yeah, there, there's a difference between people. Um, so I just back to the like the moral policing question. It's like I I understand the need for it because things have gone off the rails. But like I'm always like I'm just smelling for power. Like somebody's somebody's out for power. Somebody's benefiting from having a bunch bunch of people telling other people what to do. But we need to have people telling people what to do. But there's always like I just like maybe I'm paranoid. But that's the problem I want. Like and if we can like understand people why they act the way they do have sympathy for them and then explain why we think that they should change behavior. That's much more better route than just pillaring somebody or like making them the vessel for evil. Yeah. I don't like, uh, setting people up and pillaring them. What do you I like? I understand feeling? that you're quite vexed by this because I am. I have to let it go. All I'm the just, things I'm I get just, accused of every day just, and it's maybe yeah. due to you. Maybe no, it's it's fine. I'm just uh, it's just getting down on me. Leslie told me to, I just need to unplug. I just need to take the weekend off, and that's what I'll probably do. You should go uh, watch some jellyfish down in the in the pier. Go down a pier, watch some jellyfish. James, was it you that said in uh, said that 2008 marked a societal inflection point? If so, can you go into why 2008? I don't know if that was you, but I heard have heard somebody uh, say that. So 2008 did. I don't know if I said that. I was talking on the phone with somebody earlier today, which is kind of funny. And I said that the, where I would say that the kind of crucial period of time would have been the years 2008 through 15 is where the corner was really turned and we could yeah. basically point to a particular presidential administration. So you're talking about Occupy Wall Street to, uh, to the Trump, uh, not presidency, but the campaign? I don't remember. I don't know if they remember that like the global economy like completely crashed and then we just put wallpaper over the hole and pretended it wasn't there and like um, pretended that the second great depression that was supposed to happen from all the financial misfeasance um, was averted through what amounts to a gigantic capital sugar rush. Um, and like 
of course, 2008 was an inflection point. It was the moment where, in a sense, financial fraud got kicked up to the very highest level and the whole tower started to tip over and somehow they were able to like glue it back up with a freaking rainbow flag. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm the one who said it, but 2008 in the financial crisis and the response to the financial crisis in really eight through 11, um, or nine through 11 became the, became a definite inflection point. Uh, it's almost without question that the wholesale adoption of woke from the perspective of the corporate world took place uh, in response to that. That's the thesis primarily of Woke Inc. I think there were two other dimensions at least to it. One is the nonprofit sector. I know that the Open Society Foundation started massively funding the shift from gay civil rights to queer in 2008. I don't know why that happened. Uh, I do know that that was a year where a lot of grants were given out. Um, and I, so that's the NGO nonprofit sector. And then we've got the kind of corporate financial sector. That was the, the woke Inc thesis that was largely deployed in 11 as a response and a destroyer of, um, Occupy Wall Street, which was kind of getting to the bottom of the problem from the left. And then there's whatever the third is the policy realm and the Obama administration. That's not specifically 08. There's a lot going on. He stacked the administrative state with ideologues. That's not in question. He stacked the judiciary with ideologues. That's not in question. And he, um, his, the dear colleague letter that reinterpreted civil rights law by way of title nine initially, uh, that was all under his watch. And at the same time, of course, we have social media blossoming into its kind of full public effect. So there are other things that happened that are sort of not like, I mean, they're at the same time and maybe part of the big picture inflection, but they don't fit into the same inflection point that the financial crisis represents. Of course, the financial crisis, it probably didn't result in the election of Obama, but it probably had a lot to do with his popularity. People were really, really, really pissed at W for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's uh, that, was, that was when he ran against John McCain, right? Yeah. Uh, Obama and John and McCain, McCain was... And then... was Build as the continuation of W. Who did he run out against in uh, in his reelection? Romney. Oh, Romney. Yeah. So Margot Reyna says James blocked me after yeah, uh, I called him Candace Owens PhD. <laughs> Still love you, James. But yes, it's a platform limitation. It's an ideological Candace, split. Candace, Candace Owens PhD. PhD. That's kind like, of a good one. Do you even realize, Margot, that I literally have studiously avoided watching Candace Owens for my entire profession? I couldn't tell you three things that woman has ever said. I intentionally go out of my way to pay no attention to her whatsoever. Huh. That's a... Why? People like, send me it. videos and I on purpose don't watch them. <laughs> like Because like I little... have a... Like on a scale of zero to 100 of interest... And what she has to say, my interest level is at negative 100. Okay. That's James, how you if, get canceled from conservative events is admitting that, though. That you don't like uh, Candace Owens. That's one way. Okay. The, I didn't say should, I don't like her. Write a... I said I'd pay her no attention. It's as if she doesn't exist. Okay. If dialectic mechanism follows a pattern of mind, ideal, body, material, to spirit, and woke is ideal, what is the critical immigration theory? I'm wondering if that maps 
I'll so it it's a little more complicated because as we go from, as it goes around, it picks up elements of the others. So it went from ideal. We can, I mean, it really kind of started in the social realm and we could probably go back further or the, the spirit realm. And that was Rousseau. And then Hegel incorporated it into the idealism and then Marx took it material. And so that's like kind of one turn. So the next turn is into the cultural Marxism, which is back into the spiritual realm. And that incorporated okay. or brought with it a lot of the, in particular, that um, materialist analysis Marx had. Marx had all the idealism hidden within his materialism. There's an ideal materialist universe that he was still, there's still a platonic economic system <laughs> that's out there that you're trying to work toward that culminates if you install socialism hard enough, you end up with. So mm -hmm. the idealism is is contained within uh, the materialism of Marxism, and then the material is contained within the cultural Marxism. So those elements are contained within woke, which is back to ideal. You definitely have the cultural aspect that's very visible. It's very idealistic, but they actually say that you can't separate between the ideal and the material. In fact, they're, they're synthesized. If you read the woke literature, even the basic CRT literature, they talk about everything is that there's an idealist perspective and a materialist perspective, and they're both relevant. You can't possibly talk about a cultural issue without talking about how it impacts the material or a material issue without talking about how it impacts the cultural. So they're actually wedded together. Critical immigration theory is going to be more of that same, but it's really interesting because it's tipping into the next two parts of the turn. So if woke is ideal, the next part of the turn is going to go, and that model is correct, I should point out. Then the next part of the turn goes back into the material. That's the sustainability thing. And so critical immigration theory will tip in that direction. And the way that it's going to tip in that direction is that it's going to point out that uh, it is not sustainable for us to have relative privation from one country to another or within countries. You c I don't have to speculate that this is likely the case. It's literally SDG number 10, reduce inequalities between nations and within nations. So literally, sustainable development goal number 10 enshrines this. They will also mm -hmm. tie it to climate sustainability because they'll say that climate, sta uh, climate change is driving and the climate crisis is driving the migration. And so that's going to tip into thinking about immigration in terms of these more materialist, sustainable degrowth models that they're pushing toward. But in the end, it's all pointing toward the next cultural or spiritual turn, which is going to be the really big push, I think, and that's global citizenship. Because the idea that critical immigration theory is really shooting at, it will use these materialist and these idealistic elements that it's taking up. But the idea that it's really shooting at is the global citizen, that nations and borders themselves are, in fact, an oppressive construct that shouldn't exist in the world, and that the true nature of citizenship is actually global citizenship, and national citizenship is an inferior oppressive construct that prevents us from being able to move into a global community uh, with greater coordination and, and control. And critical immigration theory, therefore, is going to twist that woke idealism in the direction of the next materialism and in the next spiritual turn or cultural turn, I think. Uh, but things, I mean... I kind of do think that if we think of their like spiral that's screwing down to a point, the omega point, I think we are actually in the tighter part of the spiral. I don't think that they're completely wrong in how they think about their own theory. Uh, I think that their theory is just hmm. wrong. And so mm -hmm. what I think that means is what we're seeing is much more overlap. We're not just seeing a kind of materialist and kind of cultural analysis like the commodification of culture 
that you see with the critical theorists. We're now seeing this kind of like, we're not going from like one stage to the next stage to the next stage. It's like, why don't we just do the next two at the same time? And I feel like in a sense, what's happening is that they're moving so fast because these things are becoming closer and closer together. They're moving so fast that it's actually alerting people to the fact that something is not right. They're doing too much at once, too many changes too quickly, uh, too many big picture shifts. And I think that that's actually going to work to their undoing. But critical immigration theory is going to be kind of a bridge theory that's going to take us from the woke ideal into the sustainable material toward the global citizenship cultural, spiritual. And to not play into that, you have to not negate it. Well, this is the weird little thing. It's like whenever you're being under attack, you're the one that can't be emotional. You can't react because the reaction yeah. is the action. So, Right. So when critical forward, race like theory say that whiteness causes our problems, so whites are, whites are oppressive, the reaction would naturally be, you know, whites are fine and black people are causing our problems, but that's playing into the dialectic. The correct response is everybody's an individual which completely takes all of the power out of the polarity. In other words, they're trying to say that the two pieces of a pole are one part of a dynamic, but if you just say that the polarizing aspect is fake in the first place, you don't end up getting that uh, dynamic mm. that they need to move the mm. ball. Mm. My individual is going to come in. Oh, wait. Oh, she's going to come in in a bit. She wants to say hi to you. Oh, great. She's my individual. But we're a couple. See, that's the thing. Like, There's limits to this individual stuff. There's marriage. Oh, you speak like a married man. Yeah. Well, I mean, I take his limits to individualism. Damn it! I have a ring on my finger. <laughs> Don't tell her that. Don't tell her that. <laughs> I wanted smoked meat. <laughs> she likes that too. Um, do you have any life advice for uh, students that are going into college or are in the middle of college and trying to get through their college experience with all the DEI crap coming down there? Breathing I, I mean, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of things people need to do. You need to get skills. You're not really getting skills in college. Uh, you're getting a diploma. College is completely hollowed out. There are some courses, you know, a lot of the engineering courses. I just talked to an engineer at Penn State who told me a lot of their stuff is still really rigorous. So you can get some skills that are specific, but you need to be aware. I talked to a woman who was going through an education program and she said it was completely, like, completely fake, right? It's just complete bullshit. So what she did was went and took notes on how not to educate during her days at school yep. and she went home yep. and read old books on how to do education in yep. her free time at, at home, which if you're in engineering, you probably have less free time than if you're in education, no judgment about which degree here. path you chose. But I think that's important. Uh, hi individual. Oh, she can't hear me. Hi, yet. James. Hey, good to see you. I'm trying to give advice to college students. Do you have any? Um, <laughs> drop out. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought, but I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's not a good place right now. It's not a good place. Uh, you do need a social safety net, I think, if you're in college. You do need to have people around you that so you don't completely get subsumed by the mob or feel like you've lost your mind. Uh, what I've noticed is that as long as you don't spin off into some wacky BS that, that, that based college kids become increasingly based and kind of more cool and they pursue actually generating skills and finding skills. So finding a way to make sure you can keep your head and keep your, your feet under the ground, uh, get involved in stuff off campus, like stuff in the real world that, that even if it's just a club, like the, a job is better, like doing real stuff as opposed to like fake campus stuff uh, as much as possible. You really got to stay in contact with the world outside of uh, the little communist uh, cult universe that you're mm -hmm. stuck in. Um, 
I mean, I could probably think of a lot more stuff, but I got distracted by how Benjamin went from being one to becoming two. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about individualism, and I think oh. it's bullshit because, like, I keep on like turning into you. <laughs> well, I like your. Did you see that thing good. where trans guys keep turning into their wives? Oh, Just take yeah, a picture. You know weird. what you're going yeah. toward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's really good advice, though. Developing a reference group outside of the the woke group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any questions um, for James? Questions for James. What's your favorite kind of clam chowder? Uh, you know, I'm probably going to go with the original, but I didn't try any of the clam chowders because I decided to I have know. fish and chips. And I was lying to myself that I was going to stick on my almost all meat diet. Yeah, you had a lot of non-meat potatoes. The, the, the fries were, the chips were insanely good. Got to get those next time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go down there. They were the go best. I mean, I gave one to Benjamin. There's the best chips I think I've ever had. You got a fry, and I. Didn't. I make better chips than that, but yeah, he does. He we'll have to have you over fries. sometime. Yeah. Oh well, some chips. Well, I've got my solid yeah. ground group. All right, so I'm gonna go back to it. It's nice to see you, James. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Okay. We're like a family now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm like a squatter on your family. <laughs> see you, babe. You can't evict me. I'm squatting. No, you're squatting. You're squatting. Let me. Uh, we should probably wrap up soon. Yeah, almost at two hours. Yeah, uh, there's another. Oh, yum. James and Tick History, please work together, ref, National Socialism, Fascism. We need a series on the socialist base of both. H and Mus started as commies. That'd be Hitler and Mussolini. Oh, yeah. You did, uh, when we were on the docks, you were talking about like this uh, socialism via fascism. Or, yeah, communism via fascism, which I thought was Yeah, I put it really well on Twitter the other day, and people really resonated with it. What I said, in fact, is that the the uh, vices of envy and sloth are the, um, the mothers of communism. What I didn't indicate is that when communism starts coming along, it has children. So mothers and sloth uh, – sorry, mothers and sloth. No. Sloth and envy are the mothers of communism or parents of communism, and they give birth to uh, – what communism gives birth to is despair and fear. People are like, oh, crap, this is coming. This is really bad. And not everybody, obviously, but the people who become aware of it and they start getting more and more desperate. And I see that desperation and fear a lot. What I said mm-hmm. is that desperation and fear are the parents of fascism. And so um, what I've, hmm. I, I've said for years, in fact, I think now that, that communism is the marketing department for fascism. But I think that in two ways. One is that what communism actually sets up is fascism anyway. It's just with a slightly different ideological bent, but it's still binding together all of the productive forces of society and the society all into one, like a bundle of sticks so that it's more powerful. Fascism is doing that specifically to beat back communism, but uh, it's, it's not really that different. But so the one way is that communism is a sales pitch that installs a communist dictator who implements just his own brand of fascism, which is an ultimately a equity-based distributist model that's super strict. And they figure out how they're going to distribute according to uh, what they think is equitable distribution in society. And then in a fascist system, you have a different distributist model. So you still have a central planning committee that decides how things will be distributed among the commonwealth. 
Uh, and uh, the second, what I what I've started to say before that was that the second way is that uh, fascism itself is born from communism attempting and failing. But uh, with the fascist model, you have just the same kind of thing. You just have a different distributist model. So you have a slightly different philosophy deciding who has access to the commonwealth, but you're still binding all the people together in a totalitarian system to produce something that could be recognized as cooperative wealth or commonwealth. In other words, a socialist program. And uh, then you're distributing it differently according to essentially the ideology in both cases of distribution is you distribute it according to who is useful to the state. Um, Mm -hmm. They just use different excuses for what useful looks like in each case. Uh, so they're really not that different. There are some differences. I mean, it's obviously stupid to say that there aren't any, but uh, it's like, that's like if, uh, you know, you have two kids and one's a boy and one's a girl and they're brother and sister saying that they're, they're, they're so fundamentally different that they're not siblings. Um, hmm. They're very obviously siblings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Logan Lansing's upcoming book, somebody wants to, is that the okay. uh, Queering of Education? Yeah, yeah. Is that the yeah. one? Yeah, well, we haven't. Yeah, let's end on, it just uh, happens pitch. a lot, Benjamin. I end up announcing things on your podcast. I haven't announced hey. this publicly uh, oh. yet, but we can, and because it's already in process, we're getting there. Um, so Logan Lansing, if you know who he is, at Herbert Marcuse USA on yeah, good stuff. Uh, or whatever Mark uh, USA. So it's Marcusa. like Herbert Marcusa, but with an A on the end. Uh, has written a book that he sent to me a couple of months ago. Um, We've decided that the title, it's about queer theory and education. And the title we've decided to run with is The Queering of the American Child. And it is, as a fairly lengthy subtitle, I can't write or cite from memory. Um, But it is a very accessible guide. We're hoping, I think, February is probably a publication date. I've been recording. I did some today, actually, recording the audio book already. So there will be an audio book. Please don't ask us if there's going to be an audio book. There will be one. Please don't ask us. Uh, I guess if you've written a book, you know, you get asked a billion times until it gets released. Will there be an audio book? Will there be an audio book? Yes, I'm recording it already. Um, so New Discourses is publishing it like we did with Counter Wokecraft. So it's Logan's book, but I've written an afterward. I made contributions and helped him edit it. Uh, and so we're, we're kind of jointly publishing it. Uh, but it's his book and his, his writing, which means I can say that it's really brilliantly written without being like a weirdo. I wouldn't have written it this way. I would have been much more complicated and hard to read and dense. And his is, is extremely accessible. I think people will find it to be a kind of game changing uh, book to read. So look forward to that. Uh, As we move a little farther forward, we'll be able to get the Amazon page up and you can do uh, Kindle pre-orders is the only thing that let us turn on. But uh, that's coming. Like I said, we're shooting for early February as the, publication date the title's the queering of the american child and logan lansing is somebody you should follow at herbert marcos usa he's good he's a good follow i hope that to get him on to talk about his book when it comes out somebody's asking you to dig more into the mystical side of the globalists so you're just getting a lot of requests do you have enough work yeah well i mean no? uh, the, the united nations was like this weirdo new age program from the beginning and that's really kind of the practical epicenter of the the globalist agenda so there is that um there are probably other weirdo mystical things in the uh the the groups like the royal families behind 
that project as well, but I don't know as much about that. Yeah. Occultism has been a major force throughout all of history. Do you, do you feel like it's, so it's not like a, it's not getting you off base. You feel like when, when, when you study that aspect of what's going on, the symbolic aspect of all these kind of like these people throughout history and what ties them all together on a symbolic level, or at least on a theological level, you, you think that that's a, a very important underpinning to the, to explaining what you're explaining, like the Gnostic occult aspect. Gnostic is more complicated. Like maybe a lot of people would disagree, uh, but Christianity is a fairly unified thing. I mean, I know there's a lot of denominations and there's that Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant thing, but it's fairly unified. And so you can talk about Christianity kind of writ large in kind of a meaningful way that does not apply to the Gnostics. Um, the, the occult or esoteric religions in general are extremely syncretistic. So they kind of just pick up whatever it is they think that they want. I would actually, to be honest, say that they're probably more of psychological dispositions that have adopted um, certain motifs and that have borrowed from one another, mostly according to need, um, that the agnostic disposition or motif is that in essence, uh, reality or existence is, is a prison and that powerful forces and evil spirits of some kind or another have imprisoned us and mm. our true spiritual nature could shine through if we were only more aware of it and how the dynamics of oppression work. And hermeticism is not quite that way. It kind of has the similar starting point, but rather than seeing existence strictly as a prison, it sees it kind of more as a fallen form that you can kind of raise your spiritual level and rise up out of. Mm -hmm. And these things get fuzzy and blurry because you can actually mix and match them. There's no real rules. There's no, there's no like kind of cohesive doctrine like you have in Christianity or even Islam that kind of holds it together better. Um, there's no rules with new age bullshit. You can pick up whatever the hell parts you want and discard whatever other parts you want, because what you're saying is this is the secret truth and the secret interpretation that they don't want you to know at every turn um, mm -hmm. and just cobble in whatever other bullshit, whether it's another religion, whether it's some crap you made up, whether it's like you had a weird dream but, but or if, a drug fueled vision. If your supposition is that it is all crap or bullshit, then how how is the how does it keep on occurring and how does it keep on showing up in the patterns that you're describing about historical patterns and patterns of power that you're you're seeing well i mean it keeps showing up because if it is a underlying disposition okay. toward how you think reality is constituted uh, i did a podcast about this where i said i think that there were fundamentally four or maybe five i'm not sure whether i want to count the fifth one dispositions toward being itself and if it's a disposition, that means a certain percentage of the population, for whatever reasons, intrinsically probably not, but maybe they are biased toward it intrinsically. Uh, but for whatever reasons, most of which are largely exogenous, I have a feeling, uh, they get caught up in it and take it, take it, take it up. And the architecture is there, the pieces are there to put together. Uh, but I think that the kind of four or five, we'll do five just because I don't know if one of them counts dispositions of being are the, the existence as a prison. And I think that's the Gnostic one. I didn't ask to be born and now I'm fucking stuck here. That's the attitude. That's the disposition right there. That's the not, that's the beginning of Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And then existence is a tragedy. And I think that's the beginning of, of Hermeticism. And so uh, 
whoops, you know, I have to live, but I'm in this terrible fallen form in this terrible fallen world, but I at least can spiritually elevate myself and grow out of the tragedy. That's the hermetic uh, disposition. And then there's life as a comedy. And I think that that's the kind of dark humor you see in kind of people who have like, <laughs> I see it in Jewish people a lot, frankly, hmm. where Jewish humor is kind of based in this. You actually see it in kind of post-Soviet Russian people or Eastern Bloc people too. It is very dark humor. And I mean, when I say life is a comedy, I mean comedy like in the classical form of a comedy where dark stuff's happening, but you're kind of making a certain kind of light of it. And then mm -hmm. the fourth is that, that, that existence is a miracle. And um, I don't think that you have to be particularly religious in order to uh, accept that we can be, you know, grateful and fortunate for the world that we we live in and the opportunities that we have in it. And so that's sort of that fourth disposition. The fifth one, which I don't know what to do with, is actually the position of critical distance, which is what uh, hmm. people accuse liberalism of promoting, is that, you know, we can scientifically analyze the world, we can, um, you know, kind of detach ourselves from it and just be interested in studying it or whatever. But I don't know if that's a true disposition. I think that that's more like uh, Jonathan Rauch and Kindly Inquisitors says it's more like a habit or a thought or an ethic. I don't think it's a disposition toward the world. And if you actually think about it, like I don't remember the exact wording now. I had it a second ago and it's gone. But Richard Dawkins talks about like the magic of reality or something like that. I think that one of his books was titled the magic of reality. So there's almost this miraculous orientation. Like he sees being itself, not as a perverse comedy or a tragedy or a prison, but in fact, and this guy is like the Mr. Atheist guy, right? But he sees it in some weird way as miraculous. And he tried to inspire the miraculous awe and wonder that religions often do in both The Greatest Show on Earth and The Magic of Reality that he wrote, and I think some other books he's written since. So I don't think that that critical detachment or scientific detachment is so much a disposition as it is more of a mood or an ethic uh, toward approaching reality. So I don't know if there are four or five, but if those are dispositions toward existence itself, and some people fall in each of the categories according to whatever set of factors, then they're probably going to keep dipping back toward it. I think that um, Gnosticism and Hermeticism both, mysticism in general, are actually predicated on a profound dissatisfaction with creation, or if you don't like creation, with the world as it exists. They want there to be more. Like what is, what's objectively there is not enough or boring or inadequate. So they want some extra spark or sparkle or magic or mystery. And what you end up with is, you know, I personally have literally no problem with anybody wasting their time pursuing that, or maybe they're using their time and finding value in pursuing it. The problem is that none of it's verifiable and it's one hell of a drug. And so hmm. I say this and I got made fun of for, I got made fun of for fucking everything on social media. I've been you practicing do. one of these so-called esoteric internal martial arts for like 20 years. And so how on earth am I going to throw out mysticism when I practice literally an internal martial art that's rooted in Taoism, right? And I've been doing it. I'm wearing like a shirt with the fucking tri, whoops, wrong way, heck, trigram on it right now uh, on my hoodie. So like I'm into this, right? One of the things that happens with us 
in in our in, in my under my teacher anyway that's happened the whole time is he's like stop thinking there's fucking magic powers <laughs> he's like you're not going to develop magic powers you're not going to learn to like move people with your mind there's no jedi tricks there's just training and getting good there's just more training and more training and getting more good and more subtle and deeper understanding he says a lot of people think it looks like magic, but when you learn to put your hand out, like if I come in out and I try to punch you in the nose, you probably think there's one force coming at you. But if I learn how to put two forces in my arm, when I punch you, something else happens and nobody's quite sure what happened. And guess where it happened internally inside your body by the connection of your mind and your body. It's not esoteric. It's literally just not externally visible. Mm -hmm. If you put a second direction of force into it, into a movement and He's like, stop making it esoteric and practice and try to get a deep level of understanding of what you're actually doing. And then other people might think it's magic, but there's no magic here. And what he always warns us about is if you pursue the magical side of it, the mystical, oh, I'm in by turning the circle, which is our key exercise, I'm cultivating my chi. What you're going to actually do is you're going to turn the circle sloppy. You're going to focus on the wrong things. You're not going to develop well, and you're never going to get anything that you think that you want. And you're never going to get anything real either. And so you're, it becomes a distraction and a waste of your time to focus on more than what's there. The key should be to focus on the maximum amount of what is there. And whether you find wonder in that or awe in that or inspiration in that or value in that or whatever, doesn't matter. But if you start chasing a fantasy and start imbuing meaning in a fantasy, then you're going to, what you're doing is by definition frivolous. And so that is wasting time. Now, I don't care if that makes you happy. Go do it. I don't care if somebody wants to go train this martial art wrong. I'm not going to go bother them. I don't give a shit. I literally don't care what they do or if they get good or not. I don't care. It's not my business. If it makes them happy, like literally, this isn't feudal times yet again. So we don't need to go fight all the damn time with our fisty cuffs. We don't need, it's like, this is, it's not, it doesn't matter. They're not in my fucking army. I don't care if they can fight. And so it doesn't bother me. Now, the same thing happens though with religious mystical experiences. Now I used to meditate a whole lot. I've done a whole lot of meditation. I've done a whole lot of breathing exercises. I've had strange experiences. I don't know what causes those experiences. But for me to jump out and say, this is a spiritual truth that I discerned that we're actually all one, when I could probably take some fucking ketamine and have the exact same experience or take some ecstasy and now you and I have this weird spiritual connection that we never had. Like, that's just chemical messing with my brain. Maybe the meditation causes you to enter into a state of relaxation with theta brainwaves, or maybe what you're doing with your breathing exercise is causing selective hyper and hypoxia. And so your brain's acting weird or your body's acting. Weird. I don't know how to interpret the subjective experience to make a jump to a metaphysical ontological claim that I can then drag other people with me into that. I have no basis for whatsoever, no matter how much I enjoy holding my breath until I get high or whatever the exercise happens to be. So what I'm saying is mysticism, and a lot of people are not understanding what I'm saying, is mysticism cannot possibly be the basis for anything other than a possibly enjoyable personal experience. You can draw no conclusions about reality from it. The only conclusions you could possibly draw about uh, reality from a mystical experience is when I do certain activities or exercises, certain psychosocial states might arise. And when you use the word heresy, sounds like what you're talking about is um, 
Yeah, you did a thread about about that. Yeah, I, well, I did. I call person. it heresy, and like three quarters so, of the but, but when people, people heresy, like, what like, you're, heresy you're talking about, what, like what yeah, against reality, then not doctrine. Well, I said reality. reality, but actually, what heresy refers to referred to originally was picking your own path rather than following the orthodox, the ortho doctrine, the right doctrine. You were picking your own. That's literally what the New Age mystic, mystic people do. They're picking their own. Now, if you want to have mysticism dabbled into your, your orthodox religion, that's fine, I guess. And you can say, well, it's still orthodox. But the fact of the matter is that you are choosing which subjective experiences count and which ones don't. And what they indicate, that's also it's, it's, it's not any different than the lived experience argument of the woke, except that it's not necessarily destructive and might be a lot more private. Um, so when I say it's heresy, what it is, is it's picking and choosing which subjective experiences are meaningful and then trying to impute that meaning onto others, which I don't think you have the epistemic standing to do. You don't have the authority to tell me your mystical experience means what you think it means. You can enjoy it. You can try to induce me to have it. You can lead me correctly with some shaman shit to have it. Doesn't really matter. You can't convince me with authority that what you think it means is what it means. But your teacher has the authority to tell you that. He doesn't tell me what anything means. He can either knock you down or he can't. That's the okay. test. Hmm. His test is, can you fight? That's the two and the two and the four. And we the don't, people ask all the time, like, wow, you've been training that a long time. Are you like a black belt? What belt do you have? We don't have belts. Our, our deal with, with that is if I fight you and I win, I'm better than you. <laughs> if you fight me and you win, you're better than me. If I fight you today and I win and you win tomorrow, then we're roughly the same skill. And that's what happens when you fight. Certain things happen. So there is none of this. Like, he's not telling, like, no, it's the, the, the test isn't, did I do the movement right? Did it feel right in my body? The movement is correct when, if I execute it on Benjamin Boyce, Benjamin Boyce goes into the harbor. With the little dragon jellyfish. Which is the... Yeah, exactly. With the dragon jellyfish. A little cauliflower. Yeah. So it's the same test, though. It's like if me and you went out like me and Mike Nana did and played basketball, and we have some video, a hilarious video of him and I bricking. <laughs> we went down there and we we're like, let's shoot some of us playing b-ball because we were going down and playing basketball. And some days we weren't that bad. We went down there with the camera one day and for his documentary. And we, sh you know, Mike is more athletic in most regards than I am. Like, I'm just going to, that's very clear. And so we went down with a basketball and for like an hour, we had a camera set up and we just took turns shooting the basket. We missed every <laughs> single shot. It was unbelievable how bad it was. Unbelievable. But it's the same thing. The, the essence of whether or not you threw the basketball correctly or shot the basketball correctly is not what it felt like in your body. It's not whether it looked theoretically correct with your fingers and the whole thing and the follow through and the jump. It's did the ball go through the hoop? That's the test. Guess where that exists? Reality. It doesn't exist in your mind. It's not subjective. The test of the experience is not a subjective one. You're welcome to go enjoy all the subjective things that you want. Just like you're welcome to be a weirdo in private. No one cares. No one should care. It's none of their damn business. However, when you start trying to say this experience has this much meaning and blah, 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 
the most you can say is this experience, say it's an orthodox mystical theosis thing or whatever, this experience has a lot of meaning within the context of the orthodox religion. You have no capacity to say a damn thing about ontological truths that you actually don't know and you're just going to have to deal with it. You, or you can say them, but you don't have any power to enforce them on anybody. And if you think that you do, you've now found an enemy in everybody who thinks that they are a person who had, can resist authority and tyranny. What flavor bis- brisket did you make Oh, we, we, we braised this biscuit. So a brisket. And what, it's like, like honey or like salt? No, 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 no. We just paprika? took it. it salt, pepper, little barbecue seasoning. Okay. Rubbed it on there, put it in the, we, we actually did it, we braised it. And so this is really more like brisket soup at this point. So it, oh, it's wow. really good. Though. Okay. So it's been really, really getting down to the Oh, business. it's all done. Yeah. It's all the way done. And uh, what, what's on the side? Corn, cornbread. Does that sound like meat? Oh yeah. You guys no. are pure meat family. Just have butter and butter. And butter this, might be on the side. And whiskey. Yeah. Whiskey and beef. That's what. That's no. Weird. Well, I don't know. Whiskey doesn't seem to like I drank a beer the other day and I did the experiment two different times now. And like, like not even that late at night. And like, I could not sleep Hmm. and it was really, really weird. Like, I don't know if it's because I put like in effect sugar into my body in the evening. (laughs) I was like wired, but I could not sleep, slept really, really badly. Had to pee like crazy, like all the time. Like, Hmm. like I think beer and I aren't getting along now. So that's not on the side. Okay. I could have whiskey, I guess, but I'm not really drinking a lot. Like the, there's not a lot of desire. Good for you. One last All question, right, yeah. and we'll wrap it up. How do we avoid the trap of Marxists calling us fascists and us calling them communists, which makes us both both look dumb? Ontario education minister has announced holomodor, holodomor, holodomor, holodomor education, and they're yelling fascism. Yeah, you can't stop them from calling you fascist because that's literally all they do. Like, that's like trying to tell a Tourette's person not to cuss. Like, you just can't stop it. It's not possible. <laughs> they they have one interpretive frame for everything, which is yep. literally yep. everything that isn't me getting my way is fascism. Uh, everything that I don't like is fascism is literally or their philosophy. Or racism. You it's can't the same. stop the them from calling over, you fascists. Over, over, but what over, you over, can do is you can expose that they are communists by definition and articulate that what they, I mean, you can actually show that the intellectual heritage that they're, that they're putting out is factually and accurately um, communist. You might also, because it's very fortuitous right now, especially also in Canada, you might just point out all the fucking swastikas that they're flying everywhere and say, maybe, maybe, maybe these people don't have a whole lot of ground to stand on. Don't get into the fascist communists. Like, Really, the guy who's flying a freaking swastika is calling me, or standing with the group who calls who stands who flies swastikas and Nazi flags is calling me a fascist. Please, we understand projection. Come off it. So, um, yeah, it it you can't avoid them doing the externalizing blame and naming game. You just have to just kind of point it out and expose it. They are trying to win over a low engagement, low information audience, and it is your job to steal their thunder by making sure the audience that they're reaching is uh, more engaged and more informed than they need them to be in order to uh, put their magic spell on people. Stay engaged. Stay informed. Get a friend engaged. Get a friend informed.
Thank you for 50 hours of no interrupting you, James. <laughs> it's been great. Let's end up the stream. Uh, it's great to see you in person, and it's great to yeah. talk to you online. Yeah. So, bye, chat. Bye, chat. Cool. And it's wrapping up. Oh, thanks, dude. Bye, Ben.